but all the games that I played with my, I would create games and they were all based on movies. So like in the pool, we would play Jaws and, and then we used to watch Tremors in my basement apartment. And anytime it, it, we had to jump up onto a couch or a pillow, get off the floor by the time a tremor appeared or we were dead. Under the umbrella of horror, you find many different subgenres that make up this diverse film genre. From monster movies to slasher films, from supernatural to giallo, horror has many faces. In 1999, we saw the emergence of a subgenre that wasn't exactly new, but certainly had never made such a splash. When three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland while shooting a documentary, audiences had no idea what they were in store for. As the iconic poster ominously revealed, their footage was found. The Blair Witch Project was not only a box office smash, it was also the beginning of a new wave of found footage horror. A subgenre that allows a fertile proving ground for independent filmmakers not only for its budget-friendly framework, usually handheld camera, no need for elaborate effects or named stars, typically common locations, but also because with the right hook, the found footage subgenre has the potential to feel more real and immersive than the high-gloss films made in Hollywood. Though there have been plenty of great found footage films since Blair Witch, here's looking at you, Paranormal Activity, Wreck, and Lake Mungo, to name a few, very few have gotten under my skin as much as the new found footage film, The Outwaters. The film's creator is Robbie Banfitch. When a group of four friends head out into the Mojave Desert on a camping expedition, we know it's probably not going to go well for them. However, Robbie Banfitch isn't content to give us the usual redneck cannibals or ghouls in the hills. Oh no. He's planning to drag us kicking and screaming into the abyss. This film takes no prisoners. It's steeped in dread and offers no hand-holding. Robbie and I delve into what makes the found footage genre so unique. Why the Blair Witch Project remains as relevant as ever, working with what you have on location, and why he's not a fan of catering to audience expectation. Charge your camcorder batteries and grab your flashlight as we explore the terrifying world of the Outwaters with filmmaker Robbie Banfitch. Hey, Robbie. Hi. How are you? Well, are we supposed to pretend like we weren't just talking? Yeah, yeah. That's how these always start. We have to pretend like <clears throat> we didn't just chat for 20 minutes or half an hour before. Yeah. You're blowing my shtick, though, by calling me out on this. I'm sorry. I'm still good. <laughs> I'm still as good as I was five minutes, two minutes ago. You have to pretend like, like... Wait, do I really have to? No, you don't. Oh, all right, because I don't know. I'm, all right. I was hoping you're better now than when we first talked because when we got on, you looked very distressed and concerned, and I, I was hoping just the half an hour of us chatting relaxed, you got you in the mood and warmed up to get it. I'm relaxed. You should have seen me at the um, Q&A the other night. The person at the concession stand said, do you want some tea to help with the anxiety? I'm like, wait, what? Do I look like that crazy? <laughs> 
to help with anxiety. <laughs> you were yeah. like, uh. I never even talked to this person before. You're like, can you can you put a little bit of whiskey in the tea and then that'll act? I got with you across the street while the movie was playing. So have you been enjoying kind of the press part of this? Like the, you know, the Q and A's and the interviews and all that shit? Like are, do you do you enjoy that stuff or what's kind of your your vibe with all that? It's interesting. It's a new thing to be doing like interview things. And so it's it's interesting and different. It's kind of fun, but I do get uh n- very nervous sometimes at the live q and a's if my friends are there right if if it's like no one i know is there then i'm fine yeah but and then like uh mary beth mcandrews from dread central she's a good friend now and she had to interview me on dread central i was so i look like i'm on drugs i was so nervous <laughs> I'm like, why am i so nervous it's mary beth <laughs> anyway but um, yeah yeah but no fun and interesting and it's like a different thing that i've never done before do you find like you're sort of developing like your kind of like what i think is always interesting is when you first start doing press for a movie like you in the beginning you're kind of finding your your answers to the because you get asked a lot of the same questions right you do i mean so it's you at some point it's like okay i want to keep this interesting for people who are going to read multiple interviews as if you have fans or whatever they will but it's hard to come up with a new answer to the same questions. Like, do you, have you figured out little tricks to that yet or how you kind of handle that? No, I just answer them. I just answer them genuinely. And then I did start to notice that for some of them, like, Oh, this is like at this point, like can it's not dishonest, but it's like, Oh, I've said this in this intonation before. Um, But then filmmaker magazine interviewed me. I was so unprepared for like elaborate, like paragraph long questions and i was hung over and i was like wait what did you ask me <laughs> just like all this I'm like, wait what i wasn't planning on having to think um so no but it's fun are you hung over right now no oh, okay good wait um good um no. <laughs> well where did you where, what's sort of your tell me a bit about like where you grew up where did you where where do you hail from I hail from suburban Spielberg-esque New Jersey, like little houses and tree-lined streets and like woods. There's always like woods and a creek somewhere. Like this, like the setting of Poltergeist, basically. Basically, well, yeah, yes, like that, except in New Jersey, which has more greenery. Right. Um, So yeah, I grew up, I'm a Jersey boy, central Jersey. Right. Um, My mom's from jersey and my dad's from like new york city staten island stuff so i'm very much like new york city and new jersey are home okay yeah and you are you're la in la now though i am when did you when did you relocate uh i first moved out here in 2007 okay after college Uh, i lived here for two years and i worked at after dark films which is the eight films to die for yeah so i worked there for a couple years um and then i moved back to well i went to australia for my quit the job and went to australia for and then i moved back to new jersey and new york and then realized i missed it here somehow um and then i moved back in 2011 okay so you've been there a while i've been here a while yeah yeah what's like you know i mean the la kind of film world i find has changed a lot like i lived there in what i don't know 20s i'm 40s now so it's been a while but early thousands i was um 
And I feel like when I go back now, it's kind of changed because, you know, not just because of the pandemic and stuff, but like actors audition now through like Zoom platforms and shit and they barely get in the room and stuff like that. Like, it's a very different thing. Have you kind of clocked that change in the time you've been in L.A.? I really haven't worked in the film industry out here. I was just, when I first moved out here, I was, but I was not dealing with any of that. It was a very independent little bubble of like 15 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I moved back, I started working at Greenpeace, the nonprofit, for nine years. Okay. So I have no idea what's going on really in the <laughs> film world out here. All I know is that when I was canvassing for Greenpeace, I saw Charlotte Rampling walking by. And of all the movies she's ever done with all the great directors, I was like, I love Orca. <laughs> I love that you chose Orca. Yeah, that's a. It has my favorite. I think it's my favorite score in all. Of Who did the score on Orca? Ennio. I don't know how to say his name. Ennio Morricone. Oh, Morricone. Yeah. 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 Um, it's so it's actually really you should listen. It's completely. Gorgeous. I've seen the movie. Was it Richard Harris? Is he the lead in that? Yeah, Charlotte Rampling, Bo Derek yeah. gets her leg bitten off. I love that movie. It's um, some of it's really beautiful and some of it's cheesy, but uh, the score is actually fantastic. I think it's the, between that and the Village score, those two. The Shaman. Oh, I'm sorry, Candyman. Yeah, the the score for the Village is exquisite, and and then Candyman. Philip Glass's score in Candyman is fucking. I love that score. I had it as my yeah, ring. Candyman's my favorite. Game is my favorite horror movie. Is it? Did you like the remake? I mean, I enjoyed it and I saw it four times, but I don't think it's um that good. Oh, am I supposed to say stuff like that? I'm kind of yeah. You can say whatever you want. Whatever. Say whatever you want. Well, I feel bad. No, but no, I didn't really like it. <laughs> well, I that said, I own it. I've seen it four times. It's just I feel like Vanessa Williams to have Vanessa Williams back and give her character one scene. And cut the scene and cut the line out of the trailer. That was really good out of the movie. I was like waiting for it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No. It's a divisive movie because I think like people who love the original kind of, I mean, it's not really a remake because it's sort of more of a sequel. It's a sequel. Yeah. Because, um, you know, of course, Tony Todd shows up again at the end and stuff, which was, yeah, it was a cool little. There were a lot of really little satisfying things about it that made me happy. Like I said, I, I've seen it a bunch of times, and I enjoy watching it, so I can't say I don't like it. I just don't think it's in the same realm of came in terms of, like, cinema. Well, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a very different, it's very of its time. You know, right now it's a very modern take on Candyman, and there's something with the time that the original was made into me that was the right fit by the right director. Clive Barker's presences felt more to me in the original, too. I he's you know his original material was great um but it's yeah I, I wasn't yeah i wasn't crazy about it either i thought there was a one great scene that i really loved remember the scene where wait wait wait, wait. let's both guess the apartment all right let me think of my favorite scene if, when she all right I was pulling I was... away and you see her body getting fucking like mauled in the apartment and it's oh great yeah shot and a great um I actually, my favorite part of it, it was the opening because they utilized that Philip Glass theme with all the skyscrapers in the in the mist. Yeah. I really enjoyed the opening. I was like, oh, this might actually be like a kind of amazing. I don't, but Philip Glass's theme isn't in it much, is it? I Not it much, much, but yeah. it, it is in the opening and, and, and here and there. Okay. 
Um, actually, I don't know if you ever listened to it, but <laughs> he he actually came back to actually write new music for Candyman Two: Farewell to the Flesh, which that score is also just it's it's amazing. Phil Condon did that. Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a, it's not bad. I I always thought the second one was pretty good. I mean, I I think it it's you know I don't think any of the sequels though in that particular series could, could compete with you. Just, no. It's kind of a one and done in a way kind of thing. Um, what what like when you were a kid? How did you first sort of get into horror? What was what was sort of your entry into into the genre? Um, the first movie I remember I remember watching was I'm sure I watched more, but I'm, the first one I remember sitting down and watching is was King the original King Kong from like the black and white. Oh, King. like the yeah the Fay Ray like I, I don't know I remember like really loving that. And then Jaws is my favorite film of all time. And I, I keep thinking it might get replaced and it hasn't yet. So um, horror, like King Kong, Jaws, and then uh, I started watching horror movies from a really early age. Uh, I, I saw Candyman when it came out when I was like um, seven or eight, mm-hmm. which is horrible to see when you're seven <laughs> or eight. It scared the shit out of me. Um, no, I don't know why. I liked being scared, and, and I just, yeah, horror ever since I can remember. Do you remember the first horror movie you saw that, like, well, I think maybe it was Candyman based on what you're saying, but do you remember the first horror movie you saw that, like, scared the shit out of you, where you were like, oh my god, and had nightmares, and it just messed you up? I'm sure there were others, but um, Candyman, if I'm, like, just thinking about it, that would be the timeline-wise or that's when I can remember really scaring me. And then the Changeling I saw not too long after that, uh, but was definitely after Candyman. And that really fucked me up. And I cried and made my dad turn it off, which I had never done. Peter Maddox. Yeah. George C. Scott is so good in that movie. Such a good movie. Well, it's like when the ghost, when Joseph, the, the voice just comes really loud on the soundtrack and the camera's like whooshing through all the halls. I started crying, and and uh, that's like the only time I ever remember being scared and asking my dad to turn the movie off. That happened to me. It's one of my. That happened to me with Pet Cemetery. I saw that as a kid, and I wasn't prepared for it. The movie, uh, like I just wasn't. Someone had told me it was like my sister had told me it was like um, she lied completely that it was like mm-hmm. a like a nutty professor uh, type. Yeah, like it was a like a kind of a family. Homeward Bound. Yeah, yeah, and and my. To this day, I'm like, I think my dad must have known what he was doing to me because when he saw Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, he would have known it wasn't that, but he still let me watch it. I remember mm-hmm. about the moment where like Pascal comes to life and says that he's going to come to him. I was, that was it. I was wrecked. Like the movie just killed me. That whole um, car, like um, him in the hospital, like early on, the, that, that still, when I watch that movie, freaks makes me really uncomfortable (laughs) it's 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 a movie like it gave me so many bad dreams for so long my parents still talk about this sometimes that like for about a year i would like you know middle of the night it'd be like me creeping in and being like sleeping here like after i saw that movie just couldn't manage it i just kept seeing that gauge kid being like no fair like i just remember that after Candyman, um my the girl my dad was dating I watched Candyman, and then later that day, we went to her apartment, and it, she had, like, not only just a lot of mirror, but, like, almost, like, a mirror collection. Oh. Like, she especially liked mirrors. Was she very, just was she very vain? <laughs> like just mirrors everywhere? 
<laughs> all I know is that her sister dated Tom Cruise. Oh. Back in the day. That's all I remember of, of her. And I remember playing in her closet um, with the cat. <laughs> wow. And, and being afraid of the mirrors. That she had all over the place. All over the place. I mean, of course, this is my, like, memory. I don't know yeah. how much over the years. Like, I've how old were you? Like, eight? Um, it came out in, I think, 93 on video, because I saw it on video. Okay. So I would have been about eight. Yeah, right. Okay. So you were... Do you, a separate you, dog I'm play, doing my yeah. math correctly here. Were you born in, like, 84? 85. 85, okay. You and I were the same. I'm 82, so we're around. So we yeah, have similar frames of reference, because I remember seeing that movie. I was a couple years older than you. And being freaked out by I had Ted Raimi on the show who has like a bit part in that movie. He's Ooh. Ted Raimi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um I think he's got this scene where what he's like with his girlfriend or something and they do the thing with the mirror and and then they, they get I think they get killed in that. Oh yeah. Yeah. In the open it's like kind of the open. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and he yeah, he's drinking like a beer on the couch. Yeah. 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 And she's like she's like um <laughs> yeah she's very that's going to sound on your audio yeah people who don't see the video are going to wonder what the, the mannerism was that you just did for that it's like a shoulders going up and down like a gay thing <laughs> she was just so horny a gay thing um it's like a little gay move yeah <laughs> gay jive um yeah when did you sort of decide you wanted to make horror movies um I, I used to play with my toy, like I had Jurassic Park, Alien, toys, and then I also had lots of crocodile sharks and like lions. All my favorite movies were like killer animal stuff, a lot of them. When I was little. You need to make a killer I animal think. movie, clearly. That's got to be a project that you take on. Yeah, I um, that is a goal. I'm trying to think if there's a killer animal. Well, technically there are some. I definitely threw as many nods to animals in uh, Outwaters. But no, I do want to do specific. I actually have a few killer animals that are like really good. Like, what's the what would be know. your animal that like would you try to would you try to like would you stick with a classic like a shark or would you try to pick something totally unique? I actually can't talk about because it it's the project I, I'm actually trying to. Oh, you're actively working on your. And I haven't told anybody. I'm having like meetings with producers, so and they're like, "Well, what's this?" I'm like, "Well, because because it because I'd have to get the rights to a book, and I don't want them to know." Oh, gotcha. What, I can't believe it was never made into a movie okay don't tell me the animal is it a traditional animal though or is it a new animal traditional okay got it yeah but um the story is the story is more like a united 93 kind of would be a united 93 style um suspenseful heart-wrenching thriller but it involves an animal did you ever see the movie the edge with anthony hopkins that's literally in my top 20 favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. That's a great animal movie, even though it's not fully just an animal movie because it's just a survival movie, it's, but the bear stuff is amazing. Oh, it's, I mean, the whole basically second half revolves around the bear yeah. almost. So it, for me, that's a killer animal, but it's also just like, I always forget David Mamet wrote it. I know. Like, I like, Why is this so good? And I'm like, yeah. oh, because Anthony Hopkins is in it and David Mamet wrote it. Yeah, yeah. And Alec Baldwin's great in it. He's like, it's a good Alec Baldwin. Everybody. Yeah. I, uh, this scene here, yeah. what's the actor's name? Harold Perrineau, I think is his name. Where he gets... The guy who owns the inn? No, the guy that gets mauled by the bear when they first encounter the bear. Oh. That scene, I remember just being like, holy shit, because he just gets ravaged by the bear. 
But it's like that was one of the last movies that really used a real bear and didn't use like CGI to do the bear stuff. That's one of the reasons, like, I would never make a, I, I just would not make a killer animal movie if I couldn't use the real animal. Or the way they did the sharks in Deep Blue Sea, the way they did the animatronic sharks in Deep Blue Sea are I love amazing. that movie. I have such a soft spot for that movie. They just built life-size, realistically moving sharks and had them swimming around. Yeah. Like, why the fuck wouldn't you do that? <laughs> The problem, the whole movie, all, all the animal movies now have like these CGI animals, and like even when they have a big budget, they don't look real. They just they don't. It, they don't. There's no way I would ever make a fucking movie with this just with a CGI animal. Um, Backcountry used a real bear, and that's recent. Yeah, and and they only had it for I think a, oh, a day or two, but they made it work. And that movie, uh, I love Backcountry so much, and. It's really nice to see a real animal. I mean, animals are amazing, and to see them on film or to see them in a, and like really, it, it's just there's no way CGI will ever capture like the magic no. of an animal. It's funny, too, except the original Jurassic Park did. Well, and again though, because they use a lot of animatronics, you know, made by like people like Bill Tippett and stuff like that, like Stan Winston, like the best people made the dinosaurs. I mean, it's backcountry too is like cool because when i saw that a friend of mine was one of the producers on it and she was like so i she sent me the a screener of it before it came out and i hadn't i didn't know anything about it and i watched it and i loved it and i but i found it was based on a true story and it turned out that it was the story it was based on was set in a place called gonquin park which is kind of where i camped my whole life and i was mm -hmm. at the park when this couple were mauled by the bear and the in the real story, at the park. I was you camping really there when that happened. So you remember being there and like police coming yep. and stuff? Oh, wow. Yeah, my dad, I called my dad and I was like, am I misremembering or is that? And he was like, no, no, that's the time when we were leaving and all those police cars were flying up. And then we got home and we looked on the news and there had. A, a, so in the real story, it was the. the, the, the I read it. I, yeah, yeah, the girlfriend was who got killed, not the, the boyfriend. Yeah. But they, they um, pushed it for the film. but. Well, it's so interesting because I know I know all about because I love that movie, so I researched everything yeah. and found out what the real so that you were there. Now that's it's a new it was nugget for me. Creepy because it was like we were camping at the campground next to where this happened, so we were not yeah. far from it. And I was like, oh, "Fuck, we like." Well, they didn't get you. Yeah, well, and I'm I was I remember thinking I was like so well like we were there. Someone a few miles away was getting eaten by a bear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've always, yeah. I, bear movies are like, I have even the bad ones like Grizzly from like the 70s. Like, I love bear movies. I've always. My dad, that was, Grizzly was like, there was a, a year of my life when I was younger that Grizzly was my favorite movie. And you couldn't get it on VHS. You could only rent it. it you couldn't buy it. Yeah. And um, my dad, like, when he was in California on a vacation, like somehow somewhere in California found a sale copy of it and brought it back. It was like the best day of my life. I also like at this point, I, I think I owned three different Blu-rays of Grizzly for some so reason. Do I. <laughs> yeah. I have this. I just keep getting it. Yeah. I just like, well, it, it all pretty much looks the same. Oh, and I, I have this old bootleg version of, of Grizzly two from like 10 years ago that God. were like the, the real bootleg one. And then when the second one, when they really tried to put out, I have that. I have it all as Grizzly. I haven't seen the second one yet. I bought it because they reinstated footage or whatever. Is it? Is it as terrible as they said? 
it's so unfortunate because the old they, there's a lot of the real movie there, and they it looks amazing. It's so cool, and then they just d- didn't have the money or the talent to make just shoot the rest of it like that. Really, like get some old film stock and do it right. And it's a total mess, but it's worth watching for all the old scenes. Like they're completely beautifully intact and look gorgeous. Is that like so a, a concert or something? Isn't it this one? Is it set in like a yeah? Yeah. I mean, it is horrendously put together, but I am so glad it exists. <laughs> George Clooney's in it or something, right? They're like George Clooney, Laura Dern, and um, um, from uh, Platoon. Platoon. Tom Berenger's in Platoon. Willem Dafoe. It's gonna bug me. Char- Charlie Sheen. Yes. It's George Clooney's in it for like two minutes, though, isn't he? They're all in it together in the first scene. Oh, really? It's over with like five minutes. That's amazing. I have to watch it because I, I, the first one is one of those movies where every time I watch it, it kind of zaps me back to my cousins and I used to rent it at, when we were kids and just wa- love it and watch it. Like we'd watch it twice when we rented it. And like, we have the same life. Yeah. Yeah. It was like such a, and I love the the wonderful like period hair that the men and women in the movie have, and like um, the main actor—I can't remember his name now—he passed away at a pretty young age. Yeah, I loved him. I thought he was so badass and like macho and this. It's it's a pretty. It's actually a pretty like decent. Aside from like the cheesiness of the bear attacks when it's not the real bear, like it's actually kind of. Not bad. No, I, I love. I love. As far as like the Jaws ripoffs go, which it very much is, it's one of the better ones for sure. And Orca, which the best, which you, which you cited. The best Jaws ripoff is an Australian crocodile movie called Dark Age. Oh, I saw that. That was great. That's actually like a great film. Yeah, that is great. I even liked the TV Peter Benchley octopus squid movie. I even have a fondness for that movie. Well, I have that book right here. Is it called The Beast? Yeah. Yeah. That was an early read when I was like six or something. Cause I read Jaws when I was, yeah, Jaws was like my favorite movie. And then I, I got the book for Christmas and I read the book. I, I, was, I think that was like my first novel. Maybe my husband read the book when he was like young on a beach is when he was reading it. Like they were on family vacation or something. And now he's like very afraid of swimming in the ocean because of it. It just stayed. The last time, the last time I was in Miami, I was reading Jaws, the revenge, the, the novel tie-in yeah. um, on the beach a couple of years ago. And I was like, this is actually kind of well-written. <laughs> some of the Great. novelizations no- are pretty good, man. There's some good ones. There's The novelization of Jaws 2 is, like, really good. Yeah. And it's totally different than the movie because it's based on the original script they were going to shoot, yeah. which the, the movie was not. Which I, I love Jaws 2. Uh, but the it's actually a good read. Do you like the third one with Dennis Quaid? I mean, Jaws, the all, when I was little, all four of them, I just watched over and over. My favorite was Jaws 2. I couldn't like necessarily differentiate good movies at <laughs> right. age three and four. Yeah. But Jaws 2 was my favorite. Uh, and uh, yeah, I still watch all four of them regularly. I'm guessing the first one's your favorite. Jaws 2 is my favorite. Jaws is the best, right. obviously. Yeah. But Jaws 2 is my personal. I watch Jaws 2 more than I watch Jaws. The, to me, like as a kid, Jaws and Jaws two were married yeah. together, and it was like one movie. So I would just, yeah, 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 yeah. I I, I think it's it is an easy kind of because the second one, like, how long does it take place after the first one? 
Four years. Four years. Why do I know all this stuff? Because you're a, a horror movie geek, like like everyone that's going to be listening to this. You're, you're good. You're in the right. Oh, you're in the right. You went off on such a tangent. Oh, so yeah. So I so I started. I knew I wanted to make movies. Back to that ten minutes. I can't ago. believe you remember I, the original question. Wow. Yeah, I um, I'm also typically bad at that, but I did just remember uh, where this all was spewing from. No, um, I started. I knew I wanted to make movies like basically. I want to be a marine biologist. So basically, I saw Jaws. Yeah. And at the end, I I'm, I cried when they blew the shark up, and my mom was like confused. You're supposed to be like, happy why? about this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I I loved the shark. Yeah. I also loved the character, but I loved the shark. It made me sad when they blew him up. Um, and I wanted to be a marine biologist, specifically studying great white sharks. And then somewhere, I from like playing with my toys and my Jurassic Park and alien toys, I started making little stories. I probably something like that made me want. To, I knew I wanted to make movies from like eight or nine years old, earlier than that. Probably I just you know I loved them, so I just always knew that's what I wanted. To Isn't do. it funny when you think of the fact that they made toys? for the movie Aliens for kids. Like, they still do. I know, but it's just so weird because, like, I remember those commercials, like, send in the Marines, and it was like... Yes, and it, I have them. I, I have them, too. Uh, we're, we have some some similarities. Let me ask you a question. Did you used to have Barbies and have crocodiles and sharks attack them in the bath like I did? My sister had the Barbies, and I would just abscond with them and use them to be the victims of my other toys. Yeah, and I played Friday the 13th with Barbies. <laughs> It, I had, and I had one, there was one, do you remember Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan? Of course, yeah. And I don't remember if her name is Eve or Eva, but um, Asian, long yeah, hair, yeah, and yeah. she only gets choked in the, the ballroom. Yeah. I had an Asian Barbie that was Eve, and I always, it was like, my favorite, <laughs> from Jason Takes Manhattan. I would play over my friend Heather's house, and we would play Friday the 13th. I had a, I remember I had a, so... Ninja Turtles, there's a character named Casey Jones who wears a hockey mask. And I didn't have it like a Jason toy, so I used to take the Casey Jones toy and pretend that was Jason and use him to do like the Jason killings with the other toys. Um, I was more interested in how I could take Ninja Turtles and make them into other monsters than embrace the Ninja Turtles. But all the games that I played with my, I would create games and they were all based on movies. So like in the pool, we would play Jaws. Yeah. And and then we used to watch Tremors in my basement apartment. Such a good movie. And anytime if it, it we had to jump up onto a couch or a pillow, get off the floor by the time a tremor appeared, or we were dead. The equivalent of what kids play that the floor is lava game, basically. <laughs> but you made it tremor. Um, yeah. I had a game based on the movie Alligator, which was basically tagged, but the person who was it had to crawl on the ground like an alligator. <laughs> and then. This, uh, and I'll stop. Oh, no, my, there was two more. They were really good. I'll be quick. Jurassic Park, two people on bicycles were velociraptors because they could run fast. And they were the people that were it. So we would be chasing each other down on bikes, but the other people would be running. That was Jurassic Park. Did anyone get hurt in that particular game? I don't think so. Okay. The last big one was Twister, which Twister. was very elaborate. <laughs> so we had one person on a bike with a milk carton, and that was the thing that you have to leave in front of the, t- the tornado so it gets sucked up to get the reading. Yeah. Airplanes passing overhead were tornadoes. So if you see an airplane coming from far away, we had to run. We each had a stuffed animal that we kept in a tree in the courtyard. 
We had to run, get up the tree, get our stuffed animal, and then run to the um, laundry room in the basement, which was a storm shelter before the plane passed where we were done. Very elaborate. That is very elaborate. Yeah. So I was always making like movie games. And then, yeah, I made my first movie when I was like 10. It was, well, the first thing I remember filming was a episode of Jerry Springer with me and my cousins pretending one of like we were pregnant with someone's being. <laughs> and we filmed that on my, my aunt's camcorder. It was, you could tell I was gay from that age. <laughs> Jerry Springer. I might have been thinking it. I didn't say it, but I was thinking something along those lines. Yeah. And then my first like movie that I was like making a story and not like a sketch was uh, called Monster Under the Bed. And I think I was 10 and I used my aunt Mimi's big camcorder, VHS camcorder. And it was just like there was a, something taking the stuffed animals under the bed and and that was called Monster Under the Bed. <laughs> That's, uh, does that still exist? Do you have that still? I think I do. It's on a VHS. I have to ha- get money in my account because I have to get all these movies. I've, I've had like 50 plus short films from when I was like 10 all through college. I like that that's and the I reason have, you have to get money in your account. <laughs> I really need to save them. I have movies called Spatula Murders and Blade of the Spatula, The Spatula Murders 2 which is like a run Lola run inspired. I know what you did last summer chase scene inspired like set of slashers, but the weapon is a spatula. I need to get those. I need to save them. I made, do you remember the wasp woman? Yeah. I made a remake of the wasp woman called reptile woman. There was a lot, but I need to save them. Oh, that's, I mean, I, I had, I remember I did, um, a, a movie. I used to see my dad film these things. I'd get my friends together and I'd tell them what to do. And I was really bossy and probably horrible. And they probably hated me at the time. But I'd be like, "Hey, you're playing this and that," and I'd give them their props and their thing. Be like, "This is what you have to do." And so there's all these videos of us trying to like recreate like Halloween, but like I couldn't afford the mask, so like I just put like fake makeup on and, and look white like Michael, and I'd stand there. But there was this one shot we were determined to get where when Michael falls down the stairs. So I said to my friend, I'm like, you're going to play Loomis and you're going to shoot me and I'm going to throw myself down the stairs and we're going to film that. And uh, I ended up with a dislocated shoulder. It wasn't smart. Oh, no. The best one I did was a musical remake of Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho. That's probably better than the original than the one he did. Yeah. So there you go. We'll see. The first Psycho I saw was the remake. So I loved it. Because I hadn't seen Psycho before oh, that. God. Really? Yeah, so that was my first. So the story is great. Yeah. And if you remember, like, Julianne Moore is in Like, William H. Like, it actually has, like, an amazing cat. So that was my first experience of the story, yeah. and I loved it. Yeah. And then I saw it, and my dad was like, you have to watch My dad didn't like it. He was like, you have to watch the original. Um, but, yeah, no, I made a remake, and it had a dance number by Britney Spears. Uh, Baby Hit Me One More Time, dance number. And I was Norman Bates. And, um, who, who, and who, did you have a woman play Janet Lee's role or did, or was it? Yeah. My friend, Nancy Bujanowski for, um, my oldest friend. And she also is the voice of the airline attendant in the outlaw. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, and instead of stealing like $10,000, she stole like $10, <laughs> like stuff like that, but we basically remade it and it was a, a, uh, did the shower scene. How long was it? With- it's about 30, 20, 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So we just did all the major scenes, basically. And how old were you when you made that? When? 1998. Okay. 
um, 13, 12, 13. Okay. It was after the Psycho remake, which was 1998. So this is when you started to get, like, serious about it. This is when it was... No, I... <laughs> I so I feel like I was serious about it from Monster Under the Bed when I was like I was like very I was always making I was always thinking about like what movie I want to make next and then getting a new camera every few years for Christmas. Started on camcorder, then went to high eight. No, there was one before high eight with like a week it was a weird one. I can't even remember what it was called. And then mini DV. Yeah. And like what, what so what was the point though where it diverges from like, you know, shooting fun little things with your friends to you being like, I'm gonna do this professionally. Well, I always knew I wanted that to be my... That's what I said. Like, I always knew I wanted to make movies as that was my, like, career thing. Which I feel really lucky for, because a lot of people sometimes still, like, don't know, you know... What they want to do. I, I, I just, everything all through high school, I was like, I don't really need to get good... Like, I'm going to film school. Well, like, I, whatever, you know. I just always knew. I was always making something. Um, and they got more serious and more serious as as I got older. So, I mean, I was really taking that Psycho remake, like, really seriously when I was 12. Well, like, I saw, like, on your IMDb, like, you've got a bunch of shorts on there before you made The Outwaters. Um, like, did you... I can't wait to get them all on there. It was the fucking 50. (laughs) Did you start doing festivals and stuff with your shorts? No, the first thing I ever... Oh, no, that's not true. I made a short film called The Dog Sitter in college. It's actually a dog pretty, pretty good. And I was like so excited and I submitted it on a VHS tape to a festival in New York. And that was my first festival submission. And then I called them. Um, I was like, hey, uh, did you guys get the Outwaters? And they laughed at me. They laughed at you? Literally? They laughed. Yeah, we saw that. And it's actually like, wow. it's it's actually kind of, it's not even, it's good. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's actually kind of good. What is it about? Uh, Nancy, once again, Nancy Bujnowski, she gets a dog sitting job and she goes to this stranger's house to watch the dog and he's not there and she's like to let herself in and everything. And the dog's in the basement and she's hearing weird sounds. It's kind of like a little creepy, weird, not haunted house movie, but like something's wrong with the house. And it's just like an overnight. Yeah, it's like 20 minutes and it's an overnight at this house. Uh where she's supposed to be watching this dog, and then bad things happen. Is it on, like... But it's on YouTube. I was just going to ask you, is it on YouTube? Yeah. It's on YouTube, but it's... I uploaded it to YouTube in, like, 2006, so it looks like that. Um, 2006 YouTube-era upload. <laughs> right. Um, but it is on there, and you can... I mean, it's... You can still watch it. It's, uh... Yeah, no, that was, um... It was pretty good for... What happened was... I was supposed to make a movie on film. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. It was literally starring my dog. This was like my sophomore year. No, this was my, yeah, this was my sophomore year film thesis. And it it was on, to be shot on 16 millimeter. And the star was a fucking dog. <laughs> and um, it was a period. It means you gotta start somewhere. You might as well pick your dog. It, it was a period piece starring a dog. The little, like little red riding hood angle to it and i think the dog was the hero of the thing anyway we got to new jersey with the whole crew and all this equipment and i got, got did the first shot and i was like this is going to be horrible this is not going to be anything i was like we just i'm sorry guys like this is going to be a wa- i don't want to make this movie it's going to be a waste of time i just knew from the first shot it was not going to be the vision because <laughs> your dog didn't wasn't able to give you the performance you needed or it was 
when I looked through the camera of the Ariflex. You, and you had to get Ariflex and everything on this? Well, uh, School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, they start you out on film. Oh, okay. Which is why I went there. Because at NYU, at least at the time, and I think it's still, that, at NYU, they don't even let you like touch film until I think you're like a senior or something. Okay. That's what I was told. And I knew that, uh, I, luckily I had an art teacher in, in my high school that was like, you should go to School of Visual Arts. Um, that's, you, you start on film. But yeah, no, no, I just remember looking through the frame of the Ariflex at what was supposed to be like a period interior. I was like, this sucks. <laughs> like, nothing, this is not, there's no way. What, but I, I mean, it was a period? scary. Like, what, what was this, like the 70s or like the 1800s? Like, what are we talking about? The 1800s. Oh, man. Okay. It, the movie was called Barth, and the dog's name was Barth, and it was like, I forget the plot. I have a scrapbook with everything in it, but the, the dog was like, it was like a horror mystery period thing. And I don't know what the fuck I was thinking that I could do. But luckily, I knew from the first shot that we were not going to make a good movie. So I sent everybody home, which was kind of hard. But at that point, and then I had to feel defeated at that moment. Were you like, I fucked this up? I felt relieved that I made the decision to not go forward with a bad movie. Yeah. And I felt relieved, even though it sucked for everybody, that I didn't waste their whole four days shooting. And so what I had to do was come up with a new movie really quick and shoot it on mini DV. And that's the dog sitter. Okay. Did you still use your dog? Yeah. And my dog's great in it. You can see. No, my, actually my dogs were in a lot of my movies and you'll like, they're in white light, which was my college thesis film. Perfect. They were perfect. They always, they're in so many of my movies, which is nice now that they're like that. You'll be able to see my dogs on film. Yeah. That is. What kind of dogs were they? Yeah. Uh, border collies oh wow smart yeah cool and chase they're the they were the smartest well i remember my dad read a like new york times article that listed the intelligence of all the dogs yeah. and they were the smartest so that's why we got them yeah they're number one yeah they're 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 like little wolves and which is my favorite the stressful thing about them is like because they're smart they get into a lot of trouble generally like uh we, I grew up with friends who had border collies and they were amazing, but they got into so much trouble because they figured sh- shit out. They were like velociraptors. They were like working shit out. They really, <laughs> yeah. they are really like elevated intelligence. Yeah. But I, I, my dad would let my, but my dad would let my dog Cole onto the soccer field during a game just because Cole would run in the middle of the game and just run for the ball and like fuck the game up. <laughs> and he, my dad used to think it was funny in a game with people's parents playing another school and he would just like intentionally let the dog go loose and fuck everything up because he thought it was funny. Did the people who were playing think it was funny? I'm sure the kids did. Yeah. Like we did. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't. I was just stressed out. Like, why are you, this is so like embarrassing and what are you doing? But he used to fuck with people like that. <laughs> I think it's, it's funny. It's funny to me. Um, I can understand. He used to scare the shit. He also, I probably got love of like, he used to scare the shit out of me and my friends. He loved scaring people. And my brother and sister growing up told me that he used to like drive down the road with the headlights off. So he just like to fuck with people. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. I, I I have a thing that I do that drives people crazy where I'm that person that like I and I do it too much, I think, where I like stand around a corner and as soon as the person was so I jump and freak them out. And, like, I had a roommate that I did it so much, too, that it got to the point where, like, I think I actually kind of traumatized her a bit. She would, like, when she was home, she would, like, leave the bathroom and she would stop in the bathroom door 
and go, Kevin, Kevin, until I showed myself because she was too afraid to walk to her bedroom that I would jump out and and uh and now I just do it to my husband. So he's the new traumatized. I did a lot at Greenpeace when we'd be canvassing door to door. Um, I'd be with one other person and like knock on doors to talk about Greenpeace. But so one of us would be ahead and I would hide behind the bushes and pop out sometimes. So <laughs> that was really the last time I remember doing like a scare thing. I don't know why it's so cheap, but I love doing it. It's just something that there's something it cracks me up to see a person be like, oh, like I just can't. Yeah. It's it's always it never stops being funny. It's very uh it's what John Carpenter refers to as a cheap scare because it's like you don't earn it really. You're not really, but I, that's where I kind of differ with John. You earn it by by planning it and doing. It. Dude, sometimes I have sat in like a cupboard or like a crazy space to try to get the scare for like half an hour, very uncomfortable, and like a little ball to scare someone. Like that's you know I've earned that that jump. I I did one of those for Ange in the Outwaters, but it didn't wind up in the movie because it was just really out of place and it was in during a New Jersey scene. Okay. But I actually went into the bathroom in some park we were at in the woods. And then I just like waited and hid behind when she came out and I had the camera set up and I got her good. She screamed so loud, but it just didn't make sense. To the movie. It it just like, I guess we yeah. better, we better talk about your movie. Well, we're, well, Oh, what movie? Yeah. Well, you're here. Your movie is, uh, the outwaters. Um, now, uh, like I, by the time this comes out, people will probably see it. So we can like do, I won't do full on spoilers, but I, I'm going to talk a bit about some things that could be spoiler-esque. So for people who haven't seen people it. People could have gotten the screen box yesterday if they want to. Yeah, if people haven't seen it, they're interested, like this is your warning. It's kind of hard to spoil it for anyway, because even if you know everything that's going to happen, it still feels very chaotic. Well, I think it's also not really a plot movie as much as it is uh, an atmospheric, kind of feeling movie like my experience with it was i sat down and watched it i deliberately didn't like watch a trailer or anything because i i never do i want a movie to be as i want to know as little about it as possible when i I had a general idea that it was i knew it was found footage and uh kind of a general concept of like where it was set and that was about it and so watching it i was like it was easy for me to kind of surrender to it because one i didn't I just I just went with it. And I think it is the kind of movie where if you fight the tone of your movie, if you fight kind of what it is, the atmospheric qualities of it, you don't kind of go with that. You're not going to get the vibe of the movie. And I feel like that's where the movie might like split. Well, it's very much even though they're very different, it's very much like in order to enjoy and appreciate Tree of Life and like To the Wonder and those later Malick movies. You really have to just let it wash over you and go with it. Um, and in this, it at least for the starting at a certain point with Outwaters, it does. Be, you have to like either either people tune in and really focus, or it just is totally off putting yep. and yep. Um, frustrating. Uh, which I get, but I do feel like people are, you know, I mean, everybody has a different brain, and each movie is different. So it's it's like, oh, I wish because the people that really like. There's people that focus on the small flashlight beam and they're in it. And then there's people that when they see the small flashlight beam, it's just like, fuck this. This is just um, dark. We're banging some pots and pans around in the dark. <laughs> what made you decide for the movie to, to make your first feature like a found footage format? Well, it, it's actually not my first feature. The first feature hasn't come out yet because I haven't had money to get a composer. Oh. 
Uh, but my first feature is uh, called Ex Valis, and it's a black and white silent art house drama about a girl who like dies in the woods and it follows her spirit as she wanders like different planes of existence. And then it follows her friends and family on Earth as they're like mourning her, but they're all on like these different planes. It's very Malicky. I was going to say, oh, so you decided to go more Hollywood with that one. But of course, really Hollywood. I mean, everyone who like loved the Outwaters for its um, traditional, extremely straightforward narrative will love X Valley. Sounds like it. No, the reason I made that one as my first one was because most of my life, um, my serious movies, like not Reptile Woman, not not the Psycho movie, but the serious ones I made in middle school and, and um, high school, a lot of them did not have dialogue. They were silent other than music and, and sound. And so for my first feature, I wanted to kind of like take that to the highest level I could and finally do like a feature that doesn't have dialogue and just kind of like, cool, That's this is what I've learned my whole life. The reason I usually didn't have dialogue is because I knew my sound equipment was bad. Right. As a kid, I'm like, I'm not making a movie with dialogue if it's going to sound like tinny and yeah, shit. Yeah. So I just yeah. made a lot of silent films. And the ones that weren't silent were kind of like more on the comedy just for fun side. So, but yeah, um, but um, Outwaters, uh, I knew I need, needed, I've always wanted to make a found footage movie and here's where I'm starting to feel like I'm saying a canned thing. So let me just not. Um, I know it's hard to get well, around like, but, but it's interesting to me. It's true. It's just, I'm trying not to do this thing where I do these intonations of like, oh, oh here's me telling my story. Like for example, here, let me, let me, let me, come at the question a bit differently then maybe that'll help you like not go to the candy ground. like i remember like blair witch and because you know about the same age that movie comes out and for a lot of us even though i know people are like well the last broadcast came before whatever but for a lot of, of horror fans they came out around the same time yeah and i think despite what they, certain horror fans say i think the blair witch project is a better movie personally oh one yeah um, although I actually do. I, I rewatched last broadcast recently, and I'm like, oh, this is a lot. Actually, I enjoyed it a lot more than I remember. Anyway, sorry. It, it like it's good, but it's also like, at no point do you feel did I feel like it was what I seen was real. And in the Blair Witch Project, oh, yeah. like I had that experience that a lot of people did because the internet was young and fresh and a new little baby that we were all kind of learning about. Where like you know I went into it and I had been told it was a real thing. So I and I don't think now you can replicate that experience. I don't think that that can happen again. But like when you saw the Blair Witch Project, did you see it in theaters or did you see it on? Oh yeah. Yeah. Did it have yeah, yeah. an impact on you? Well, I knew it was fake, but yeah, I mean, I I thought it was amazing. Um, I was I was fourteen then, so I was starting to get a little smarter about what's what good art is and what. And I, I thought it was just like an amazing piece of cinema, um, and it scared me. And I'd never, obviously, I'd never seen anything like it. Um, and so I have always wanted to make a found footage movie. I actually tried to make a few found footage movies in high school and middle school, um, but then I abandoned them because they were stupid. Um, but I, I've always wanted to make one because I love that movie so much. Uh, and there is obviously like a, a freedom with. You can do all you need is the camera and people and props and stuff. Well, it's it's very budget friendly when you don't have money, of course. Yeah, you know. Um, but no, that's so I. But 
I've always wanted to make a found footage movie since 1999. I just didn't want to make one until I had good ideas that I thought I hadn't seen before and a good reason for the camera to keep going, which is so rare to find in a film footage movie. I was just going to say, like, that's the biggest old. impediment, right, of a found footage movie is like, why are they keeping the fucking camera? Like, yeah, yeah, and for all the people who are like, why is he still filming in the outwards? Because I have a fucking brain damage and a head wound and I'm disoriented and it's like a security. I never so, asked that in your movie. I, it, I, I know most people didn't, but it is, it, it's just frustrating to see. Like I worked, I would have never made a found footage movie if, if the reason for the camera continuing wasn't actually like an interesting idea and organic. And you know what I mean? So it is, I mean, I shouldn't have to, like, it also feels like I'm going to have to explain my movie to Whatever. Those people aren't listening to this anyway, probably. Probably not. I mean, it's funny because I think of, like, the Blair Witch Project as, like, and there's this annoying thing that you may or may not be aware of where, like, I think over the years, people have, certain people have started to be like, the Blair Witch Project sucks now. It doesn't hold up. And I totally disagree. Whenever I watch it, I'm like, it is such a smartly made movie because that movie has this great response to that problem of why would they keep recording when, when uh, what's her name? Heather O'Donoghue? Is that her name? Heather Donnie, Heather Donahue. Is that her name? Heather. Yeah. Heather Donahue. I feel like. I feel like I'll look it up. Yeah. Um, Heather. Heather. Heather from Blair Witch. Heather from Blair Witch, yeah. Where the, one of the guys says, why are you still filming? And she says, I just have to. And you kind of get the idea that seeing what's happening to them through the lens of a camera is kind of her safety net. It's the only thing keeping her grounded and stable and keeping her going. And, it, and I bought that answer because it made sense to me. There is something about viewing a world through a lens that shields you from it. Um, and I've heard- There's not a moment in that movie that I feel is false or yeah. I mean, questioning why are they still... So I wanted that for this, and obviously I don't know how much I should... But there, there are, aside from the disorientation and brain damage thing, there are other things going on at a certain point which could explain how the camera is doing certain things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why certain things yeah. are being... So the whole idea is really based around these basic principles for me where I, I just wanted it to feel real and authentic and found. And I wanted, all, you know, so it, it, it does, it gets a little frustrating. When, do you think found, when you see the do you think found yeah. footage works better in a theater or at home? Oh, I think if the movie is good, it should play both. I feel like I have this um, theory that found footage works better to see at home because what I always think of as being intrinsic to found footage is like as much as you might go into it knowing that it's not real, that if you surrender to that part and, and accept that the reality the movie's presenting, the intimacy of being at home watching it lends itself better to that found footage vibe than when you're in a theater, which has mm-hmm. the artifice of where you've said, you know, two weeks ago you might have seen a Marvel movie in there and it reminds you of that. And you, well, I, I haven't seen a Marvel movie in there. I haven't either, but, I, you know, people listening. <laughs> no, I think, um, well, see, but I do, I'm very much, like, I don't watch a movie. My setup at home is, like, I have a fairly large TV. I always watch anything slightly far at night with no other lights on. I, I put myself kind of close to the TV so it fills up about as much of my field of vision as a cinema screen and i turn the volume way up so for me yeah i mean i remember seeing blur Blur, which is just works everywhere yeah you're right i mean yeah you're right it does it it doesn't but there is something to me about 
I, I guess to me, it's also to do with how the audience behaves. Like watching a movie, I get so annoyed when people in the theater are, are yakking and shit in a movie. The phones are out and stuff. It, it, it does. I am one of those people. It's like, put your phone away. Like I'm, I'm uh, it just. Why we are this team. Do you know what I do? I have a, a two tier system. A three tier system. <laughs> if someone's talking and they're doing, you know, everybody whispers once in a while. Yeah, that's fine. When someone starts talking, I first go, shh. If they continue, which they usually do, I give another even louder and aggressive shh. And if they continue, I say, shut the fuck up. And then they shut up. And I, I, I have done that. Multi- like, how, like, how is it 2023 and people have not realized that it's fucking rude to just talk? Yep. I remember I was seeing Magnolia, which was like, one of my favorite movies. And these two women behind me were just talking through like the frog falling scene. Just like, Oh, I'm going to need a drink after this. I was like, shut up. (laughs) So you'll appreciate this. I was watching Eastern promises, the Cronenberg movie. And and I sitting in the theater and these two girls, they were like, I don't know, early twenties, but they were very like, like fucking just, they had their phones out and they were texting and they were driving me crazy. And I was like, what are you doing in this movie? This is not like this is. Did you think this was Mean Girls or something like get out of the theater? You don't belong. But um, but they just talked through the whole movie. And so this scene where Vigo, have you seen Eastern Promises? Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember it that well. I remember I really liked it. I saw it once, though, when it came out on DVD. Do you remember the scene where Vigo is in the bathhouse and he has the naked fight and it's just kind of brutal? Mm-hmm. And I remember that scene. <laughs> That's about the thing I remember. Yeah. That scene came on, and that scene is like, yes, of course, it's always kind of titillating to see an attractive, sexy actor with no clothes on, and Vigo's an appealing guy. But, but it also is like a really brilliant scene because, like, the vulnerability of his character in that scene, because you know the actor has no padding, no stunt person. Like, Vigo, and Vigo got fucked up shooting that scene. He, he committed to doing that with Cronenberg, and, and it's a brilliant scene. But the girls beside me were going, oh my God, this is not hot at all. And they kept talking about how it wasn't hot because it was like this fight scene. And finally, I just turned around and was like, would you please shut the fuck up? And this girl was like, ah, like they they had that whole, oh my God, he's so rude thing. And I was like, I'm rude. You're ruining this movie for everyone else in here. And I'm rude for asking you to be quiet. (laughs) Like, You're not rude for asking him to be quiet. Everybody was probably like, thank you. Also, can I just say one more thing? If you're at the movie, if you're listening to this and you're at the movie theater, there are ways to get your popcorn without crinkling the fucking bag. As loud as, like, be mindful of your crinkling. Just go like this and you reach in and you pull it out without touching the sides of the bag. And if you get candy, open the fucking candy before the movie starts yeah. and pour some in your lap. Thank you. It's like people who slurp their soup where I'm like, you can just put it in your mouth without... Don't have to, but anyway. Um, or coffee. I don't understand slurping coffee either. Ew. Um, it's hot. Don't <laughs> don't slurp hot things. Um, like if I have a movie theater, I'm adding those two. Like, stop crinkling your fucking popcorn. I saw you know the movie Razorback. Yeah, I love that movie. Great movie. I saw Razorback at the New Beverly Cinema, and usually that's a respectful audience. But this fucking person behind me, I swear to God, the crinkling didn't stop. Like. From the moment, the, and that's a hard thing to like cut the fuck up with. The, whoever was eating that popcorn was fucking like a machine, not taking a break. It was just 
<laughs> for an hour and a half. And had this this huge bag of popcorn somehow, yeah. Yeah. Like a duffel bag of popcorn. Ridiculous. Um and when I went to see Skin and Rink, I realized I got my ticket at a theater known for dumb people. And I was like, fuck, I can't see Skin and Rink here. So I went to an art theater. Thankfully I thought about that. Oh, you actually like you 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 were like, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna go see it somewhere else. You like called it? Yeah, I bought tickets for Burbank and it's like I saw the night house there. And a bunch of dumb, I mean, a bunch of dumb teenagers were just, like, talking, laughing, keeping their cell phones out. Um, That's the one with Rebecca Hall? Yeah. It's a great movie. I like that movie a lot. Oh, my God. I was was not expecting to love it as much. Yeah, it's a great movie. I I was overwhelmed at the end of that with that beautiful, poetic, like, oh, my God. But don't you think she's amazing? Like, is she not one of the great actors working right now? I love her. She's incredible. Known she was amazing since Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Yeah, she's the best. And I mean, Christine, like, how did she not get a nomination? Did you see the, her movie, um, the one with Tim Roth? What was it called Resurrection? I, I own it, but um, I I haven't really had a chance to watch like anything over the past six months. Just a movie here and there, but I have it. You're gonna there like you it. Go. It's pretty many. Like it's it's good. It's really good. She's just amazing. Tim Roth is and fucking scary has- as shit in that movie too. He's really creepy and all amazing. She has like one scene in Rainy Day in New York, kills it. Really? A big, a big like breakup fight. Are you cheating on me? Scene in the rain, so good. She's so on. But I, what I love about her, she's so unapologetically not afraid to like not look like a pretty actress. Like she'll do scenes where she's like ugly crying or where she's like crazy flipping out, and you could have an audience be like, "Oh my god, I don't like this girl." She's not afraid to go to those places. A lot of other actresses, I think, hold a kind of. They pull back from that a bit. Like me, yeah. What's that? Like, like me. Like I, I, I'm like, oh, I have to make sure my angle's right. <laughs> when I'm, when I'm, uh, when I'm doing that thing that I do in the end of the movie, and that's very not cute, I have to make sure that like, I get the right angle for my face. When you, no, I'm terrible. When you, like, so, you, because you did, you kind of like wear every hat in this. You wrote it. You directed it. You, uh, camera operate special effects like this is very much your movie but i'm curious for you like from the the aspect of of acting in your own film because i i've acted in a Mm -hmm. film that i directed and i won't do it again it was not an enjoyable experience to me but um for you did you did you find like you know we're joking about of course on some level about the vanity of being in front of a camera but that is a real thing you you don't generally want to be on camera i feel like you look bad or you look stupid look at this angle i'm doing this interview at (laughs) You think it's an accident? <laughs> think my camera just like lives over here? No. On this movie, though, did you have to kind of put that down a bit and be like, "I have to kind of get over that," or did you no. self-conscious about that? Oh, I'm self-conscious. Luckily, I could just keep reshooting my own scenes because I was basically just by myself for my own scene, right? And I just cut everything out that I didn't look cute in. <laughs> even if was, even if that's why that's why there's no plot, but air quotes, because I cut all the plot out because I didn't look cute enough. You're so like, sorry. Yeah, you're like, this is a non-cute no, moment. I'm taking this. No, it actually, it was, I I really could just reshoot things um, if I didn't like how I looked, or um, obviously if I didn't think the acting was good. I mean, you kind of know when something's bullshit um, if you have any self-awareness. So right. there was a lot of scenes where I'm doing the you know, mumbly shit, and it felt like 
dumb. Um, but then I knew if I was making myself feel really cringed out and uncomfortable when I was doing that, I'm like, oh, this will probably work. Right. So how did you? So I wasn't. I don't have the vanity thing with that. I mean, I do. Like, I I was at the theater for a Q and A the other day, and I and I had to like like listening to myself in some of those scenes. Just like, oh, um, I feel like I'm talking so much. I'm sorry. You're being interviewed, so you you have to. Yeah. Okay. This isn't really. I say this to people all the time. Though when they come on this podcast, like it's not really an interview. This is a conversation. We're just talking. I'm just a little amped. I know, but I feel like I'm railroading. Okay, that's the. I'm looking talking a lot and cutting you off. Oh, that's okay. I'm fine with it. Cool. Okay. This is this is meant to be just chat. You know, this is mm. this is not a formal thing. Don't worry, I'm fine. Um. Uh, what, now, do you think if you had had more money, you might have put surrendered a few of the hats you wore in this movie? Was it a budget thing or was it a control thing? Um, well, definitely had no money, so. Like, do you no think choice. you would have hired an effects company to do the creature stuff? No, no, that's fun. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had more money, the only thing that I would have done differently is get like a better Airbnb. <laughs> um, and I would have gotten all of us food. Not from Denny's. Um, there's one shot, which I won't say. There's one shot that if I had money, I would. it just would have involved a lot of extras. Couldn't afford to pay one extra. So that's the only thing um, I've seen. I'm just gonna, sorry, it's just coming off of um, the first day at Screenbox. So there's going to be some venting here. Um, I keep seeing this like tropey criticism. It's like, oh, well, trying to hide all the stuff like, the reason some of it's in the dark is because he's, like, trying to hide the fact that he had no budget, um, which is absolutely not true. The stuff that you uh, you see it fully in full daylight multiple times, like, close up, um, there was nothing... The reason you don't see that creature enough is because I don't think it would be scary to see the full a full creature, like, bopping around. Like, all these things are... So I guess my point is money wise, um, there's one shot that would have just involved Extra. having to pay a hundred people and I couldn't do that. Other than that, I don't think I would have done anything differently other than like creature comforts. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking a bit about sort of the, the found footage inspirations, things like Blair Witch or whatever, but what are some of the other found footage movies that might have inspired you or that you're a fan of other than Blair Witch that, that you know, that, that you've seen? That you're kind of like in um, by perhaps Willow Creek by Bobcat. Love that movie. Um, yeah. It's that is I remember because I, like I said I've been wanting to make a film for this movie since 1999. Yeah. Um, but like honestly, like most of them, even though I may like some of them, uh, most of them don't feel like real. Yeah, Willow Creek is like, to me. That's it, Bobcat Goldthwait, and it's this, it's a sort of a Sasquatch kind of movie, sort of. Yeah, and um. That's the first time I had seen one that felt found. Yeah. And the reason it felt found is because he got good natural actors. And he had a logical press record, stop press record point for each shot. And so I did that for the outward. Now, again, at a certain point in the outward, some things start happening that, that that could explain why rules start to change. And it has nothing to do with editing the police editing the footage. Um, it's something to do with perhaps things being imprinted on, you know, et cetera. Um, 
but no, I I, follow, I just wanted to follow that rule and have the here's where I would have pressed start and here's where I would have pressed stop. Um, I I also um, I figured if you find memory cards, there would be some stuff on them that doesn't have anything to do with the plot. Yeah, and so I did want to I I intentionally kept some of that in because I felt overall it would lead to a more authentic like experience. Although everything's like layered with like tiny little omens and, and little tiny details, but um, like what was the this, at the script stage when you were breaking the story and writing this? Like, did you is this like was there much improvisation in this? Like, did you give the act? Mm-hmm. You did okay. Yeah, um, I just basically filmed our actual road trip. Now, obviously, there were certain scenes. You know, um, Michelle's mom's not dead. My oh, I guess my dad. So my dad is dead. I was going to say my dad's not dead. Well, I guess he is. <laughs> Scott's not my brother. <laughs> right. Um, so there's stuff like that that were needed to be brought up here and there. Um, but no, for the, the plan for that was to actually just film the road trip and film everything. So I'm not the kind of person that walks around with the fucking um, iPhone filming myself on like a selfie stick and upload like that's not me. So it was kind of cringy to film things as people seem to do these days. Um, yeah. Am I going on a tangent? No, you're answering my question. Oh, well, what was the question? Because there was, there was an end to this and I didn't get to it. I was asking you kind of like, well, actually the initial question was like, what were some other found footage movies that you liked? But Oh, Willow Creek is the one that inspired me to get up and make that out. And like, all right, I really got to get this done because, oh, it, it just inspired me. Like, oh, this is also feels found, and I love the movie. I love the characters, and I lo- I just loved it. I love that you're loved bringing it. that movie up. I'm a big fan of that movie, and nobody talks about it. So I'm really pumped that you're. Well, I feel really cool because I'm such a big fan. Over the years, I've been talking to Bryce, who's the Bigfoot guy, who's in the movie. We became Twitter friends. <laughs> Bryce is the yeah, and like, um, yeah, and I got to tell him to pass along the message to Bobcat, like that. Hey, the Outwaters is. Um, thank you, because watching Little Creek just made me want to go do it. I love the couple um, that are the, the main characters in that movie. They're so great. Yeah. They're so great. Like I- so, that one. And then um, Punishment Park, which is not technically found footage, but it's like a fake documentary from the 70s. I haven't seen that. Oh, it's it's um not it's 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 cinema. It's Peter Watkins. Okay. And uh it's about it was made in the 70s, and it's about um, people that were, like, protesting the government for war and stuff like that. Um, the government, they give them these bullshit trials where they can either, like, be sentenced to, like, some ridiculous amount of time for with no jury. Or they can spend two days in Punishment Park, which is, like, an obstacle course that they have to, like get through and the the government basically like hunts them down as training um but it's all shot by a british documentary crew um that's cool they got people like actual republicans actual anti-war people and like got people with those real views and just let them fucking yell at each other for real (laughs) it's amazing it feels so it's so authentic it's harrowing it's also shot on yeah it's also shot on a dry lake bed in the desert so that was like a mood inspiration and it's really i mean it's a it's a thriller 
social commentary, but it's like really fucking tense. And they shot on 16 mil. This is fucking amazing. It's funny because I've, I've talked to other like genre filmmakers about this, how I, I think fans of the genre sometimes wrongfully assume that a horror movie director will be, always be inspired by horror movies. But so often, like, you know, in the horror movies that I've made and some of the horror directors that I talk to on the show or that I know in real in personal life, like, it isn't even a horror movie that inspires you to make your horror movie. It could be like Chinatown or some, just a movie you love. Like, uh, um, I was going to cut you off. Again. I, I, I felt it. I felt it coming. Go, 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 go. Well, like, two weeks ago, Scott, who's like, been one of my closest friends forever, he's like, you know, you tend to like cut people off. I was like, what? <laughs> Why have you never told me this before? It's, you know, just, but he's, 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 he's just want to get excited. I did. So well, I my editor just told me in, in in an interview that I did with a director that I love, and I I won't say who it is because it it spoils it for when we launch the episode. But but and plus, people will then look for the one I'm about to say. My editor messaged me. He's like, "You interrupted him a lot in this interview," and I was like, "I'm sorry. I was so excited to talk to him about." Yeah. Like, <laughs> Keep getting excited. <laughs> he was like, "It's okay." Was like, like, but now I can't remember what I was going to interrupt you with. What were we talking about? I was talking about how, like, you you know, you even though you you, you might be making a horror film, the movies oh. that inspired you in the, in your influences for that horror film might not be horror films. Exactly. So for Outwaters, actually, one of the biggest inspirations is just Terrence Malick. Later stuff. Um, I wanted it to be like Blair Witch Project. I made my character um a Terrence Malick fan, which is like a huge stretch. Um. And I just figured that could be a way to make found footage really beautiful. But also it was interesting because I'm very used to like very carefully composed shots, like the silent feature I was talking about. That's very like still classically composed shots. Very like, yeah, no, no real movement. And if there is, it's on a glide cam in these. But for Outwaters, I kind of had to like try to find these beautiful moments, but make them imperfect. Because I, I, I wanted my character to be kind of an amateur. Yeah. <laughs> so it was interesting. It's a, it, you know, uh, to, I was like, oh, I think I'm filming this a little too, not to pat my, but I was like, I think I'm like filming certain, you know, I'd be in the middle of a shot and like, wait, this looks too um, set up or something like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, do you think you would return to the found footage format? Or do you think you've got that out of your system? Like, is that a format? Well, like the, my next movie that's premiering at Unnamed Footage Festival, March 24th, is found footage. Okay. Now, listen. It's shot mini DV, 4x3. Totally different vibe. Totally different story. Um, it's like a character mystery drama horror. Um, and I also, I did that because I had had this idea for that for a while. You did this after Outwater? I, I filmed it while editing Outwater. Okay. Um, and, and this was also just another movie idea that I had had for a while, and I just really wanted to... And it was very specific to, like, this mini-DV thing. Um, What's it called? And so, Tinsman Road. Okay. I don't have any future plans for found footage. Two is quite enough back-to-back. -back. Although they're very different, like, I would like to get back to, like, storyboarding. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because I, I, I love that. I love planning it. Um, that there, I'm sure there will be one more in the future because it is really fun. And if I ever like get, you know, like Hollywood doesn't want me, which I don't think they 
necessarily do anyway, but like I can always just go do, um, you know, I have a lot of good ideas now for found footage, but I am a little like bored. Well, I, I shot one movie that was not found footage, but it was all handheld and supposed to have like kind of a documentary. To be honest with you, after I finished, I was like, I don't really like shooting like this. I like my, I like composing a shot. I like blocking. All, all those are part of the experience that I, that are part of yeah. the craft that I, that I think are help me tell the story in the way that I like to. So I was just wondering like, yeah, you know, if you had that experience of like, you know, because of the found footage format, it's sort of incumbent upon you to have to do things a certain way. Did that ever feel limiting where you're like, I, I, I'd really rather block that this way, but I can't because that'll feel staged? Probably just in the moment when I'm looking through the camera, I'm like, oh, wait, I wish I could do this, but this will, this will feel like that shot in um, Knock at the Cabin when they're looking at the wave come and the camera's going like swaying. I haven't um, seen that. To make it look like, well, there's a found footage moment. And and the movement of the camera is very like we are doing a found footage thing right now. This person <laughs> is moving. so yeah. Um, there are moments like that, uh, but it was pretty. I, I mean, I do like shooting that way. It's really fun. Yeah. But uh, I also, you know, I've now done it twice in a row, and I would like to get back to more classical storytelling. From the standpoint of you as an actor, director, the writer, the filmmaker behind all of this. One of the things I think that's unique to found footage is kind of the concept of the the character as the storyteller rather than the director making all those decisions. Now you're kind of both in this situation, but the camera, what we see and what we and how we experience it is controlled by what the character decides to do with the camera. And, and there's and there's a, a kind of an aspect of that part of your performance is how you use the camera, which I think is a very unique thing as an actor. So when you were did that ever for you as a performer? playing a part, like, I know you're kind of playing an offshoot of, like, now that I've talked to you a bit, like, you know, this character wasn't, like, a completely different person than you. It wasn't like you're playing, you know, someone, not, nothing like yourself. But but you still have to create a character and a performance. And part of that is 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 in, in the way you use the camera. Like, was that fun to kind of get into, okay, like, how would, how do I decide how this character's going to move in this scene and what he's going to look at? And, or was that just kind of something you did in the moment, the more organic? No, because it really was just me. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just doing what I would do, except a little bit shittier. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then aside from, of course, all the moments where I had to do actual, like, try to, like, not, like, things that weren't true, you know, like the yeah. horror stuff, obviously. Yeah. And, and so that, yeah. But that was very instinctual. And, and, um, yeah, but for the most part, I just, I tried to film like I, I I did used to take my camcorder to high school and film shit. Um, that's the last time I was like one of those annoying people, but it was before it was like a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I remember I'd be like sitting at the lunch table and like instead of just filming my friends talking, I kind of like zoom in on someone's wisp of hair as they twirl it and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I tried to like do that, have my character be focused on that kind of stuff like I was focused on in high school, mm-hmm. um, which is which is why there's so much little so many little shots throughout the first half of like the wind or or the um, that's also very malik though right like malik does a lot of (laughs) well my character's a big malik fan yeah like i think of you know thin red line like there's particularly how malik uses nature and animals to kind of just he'll take a moment just showing a birds or a little squirrel or whatever just he does a lot of that stuff and i love that he does there's stuff like that in your movie too. Like uh, I love the donkeys; they were great. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're sweet. 
Were they, were they, um, were they I, donkeys one, easy to work with? Were they cooperative? Yeah, I walked right up to them and they like looked amazing and just like chilled. <laughs> so I'm pretty actually I'm pretty good with animals. So there's animals in um, Ex Valis, a lot of my old movies. I think there's some animals in Tins and Ro- Like I'm pretty good at getting up close to animals in nature and, and not having them run away. Are you an animal like are I you run. an animal buff? Are you an animal lover? Um Yeah, I love I, I mean I, I eat meat. But I love animals. <laughs> yeah, um, I've always. I mean, like I, I, I tried to find great white sharks. I tried to find a crocodile in Australia. I succeeded in finding a crocodile on my own, and I succeeded in finding a wolf in the Arctic on my own. Ooh, that's tough. Huh? Wolves are shy. That's they're tougher to see. Yeah, no, I, it was a whole thing. I woke up in my tent and I felt like there was a wolf outside when I woke up, and I went outside and there was a wolf. Were you scared? No, no. Wolves don't scare me. No, it's also funny because, like, you see these movies like The Grey and stuff, which I love, actually, I have to admit. I love The Grey. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Uh, So unrealistic. Yeah, but it's great. It's so, yeah, it's totally unrealistic because the truth is, because I'm obsessed with, like, animal attack books and documentaries about animal attack stuff. I have them all, too, the books (laughs) that you have. Yeah. Um, Wolves don't attack people. It's, like, not a thing. There's, like, no... In, like, North America, there's been, like, one person. In Russia, they did... But not really here. There was like one wolf attack maybe a year or two ago. That was like, it didn't even get killed. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, wow, wolf attack. Yeah. First time in like a hundred years. It's funny because wolves like, without getting too geeked out about this, but like people have this fear of wolves or whatever. And a lot of it has to do with a cultural session. Like there was a period in the, I think early 1900s where they were wiping them out because people just were afraid of them. And they were scared of them. And, you know, the big bad wolf, that whole thing. But they're very timid animals and they, they don't like people. They don't come near us. They don't want to be around us. They just, they want to be left alone. And they don't, you know, it's kind of weird that people have this paranoia of the wolf attack. Cause it's not. Yeah. No, with the wolf specifically, there was no fear. Crocodiles, scary. Sharks, scary. I mean, I did, I didn't find a great white, but when I was in Miami, there was a bunch of sharks swimming um, on South Beach, like we're by the hotel on it. Everybody ran out of the water, and I ran in and swam with them and touched their caudal. Sharks I'm scared of. I wouldn't be doing that. I, I'd be the people that I'm I wouldn't say it was smart, but I also know the statistics. And... <laughs> I wouldn't say it was smart. <laughs> <laughs> like, were the donkeys just there? How did you, did you, how did you get yeah. there? Oh, they were just there. I didn't even know there were wild donkeys until they were in my movie. Because I, I was watching, I was like, did you bring, like, did you get a farmer to come bring some donkeys out, or were they just hanging out? They were there. Hmm. Did you like? Did you go up and pet them and interact with them? No, I got up as close as I could to get the shot, and then followed them around. Got all kinds of different shots. Because I love that the donkeys, and I don't know. This is funny. I don't know if this is me as a viewer investing this in the donkeys, or if it's just the the composition of how you grabbed it. But the donkeys feel like they're performing in the movie. They do feel like they're part of the tapestry of the story. They don't feel. Like I. Sh- it's kind of a cool thing. Well, they were there, and I knew I have to get... So basically, I, like, just in different states of mind, knowing where the character would be in different places, I just try to get shots all as the... Well, yeah, like, I just tried to get shots all different ways. I, think I, I basically wrote them in within the 10 minutes. I gave them a whole arc within the 10 minutes that they just happened to be there, which is why it feels purposeful and like that they're doing things i mean and they are they're like super like yeah it was funny because like when you first see them i was just like oh you know cute donkeys and then the, the 
there's something about the later appearance of them where it's like the donkeys are sort of observing that bad shit's going to go down and they're trying to, it's, they're almost like harbingers. They're sort of warning you that there's something mm-hmm. bad shit going on. And, but that's, the donkeys aren't giving me that. I'm putting that into them in the way that you've added them into the film, right? As a storyteller. I think the way I framed them too yeah. and the way that they're looking is a little ominous at points. Which is like, I think, kind of an amazing thing, right? Like that's sort of, not to be too grandiose, but it's sort of sort of the power of being a filmmaker is you can recontextualize something in a way that like the donkey isn't giving a performance that conveys that. You're creating the artifice of that, the, the, the impression on the audience of that just by where you cut it in and what's happening in the story. It's kind of like, I love that about those moments like here where you just were like, oh, look, donkeys, and you figured out how to create them and sew them into the art. Story. I'm guessing, like they that from what you're telling me, like that wasn't something that you had in the script or that you planned. No, they got written in as soon as they appeared. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they, I like I said, they got, they got a whole arc within a few minutes of me starting the film. I'm like, all right, how can I? What's what's? How can I bring these back later? And all oh, right, I should be like this. I'm going to be like wandering around. This is the state I'll be in. I'll see them again. Yeah. So I filmed it like that. Like, you know. How many days did you shoot for? Uh, a com- desert days, like a combined total of 25, but, you know, a few hours a day, like we'd go out to an Airbnb, go out for like five or six hours and get most of the shots. And then, so all like 25 days and then all the stuff outside of, um, the desert, a lot of that was just kind of slice of life. I was capturing a lot of slice of life stuff, um, intentionally to incorporate so that i don't know the cast um outside of you are they people like that you cast or are they actual friends of yours i cast my actual friends of mine (laughs) yeah no they're just um um all of them are close friends i could kind of tell there's just the the chemistry between you and them was detectably to me that these were people you really know and because it's really hard to I don't know, even really good actors to from a performance standpoint, creating the idea of history or intimacy between friends, it's challenging. And like, you know, so unless you have really, really great actors or it's the real deal or you luckily both. Um, but I kind of wondered if they were actual friends of yours. Like you said, Scott is like your like your best friend. Right? Yes, yeah, got some. Scott's like a brother. Ange, I've been friends with since college. Um, Michelle, I've known for 12 years. And, um, I did, I mean, I did cast them in the sense that I have, not to brag, but I have, like, a lot of friends, but (laughs) I, um, but I did specifically choose them, um, for their qualities. Like, Ange cracks me up. She's very funny. Um, um, Michelle is just such a genuine sweetheart and, like, pure soul. And so, just kind of, like in love with nature and life and scott's just very um kind of like reassuring and calming and like steady and stuff so i did pick them specifically because i thought it would be a good mix I, I when scott's smoking the cigar i was like he's not a cigar smoker he doesn't know what to do with that <laughs> neither am i yeah he was like i was like yeah that's that's very alien to him, that prop. Um, uh, so did you, is that how you kind of 
did you just sort of design scenes that could convey the friendship you have with these people and sort of think, well, if we just block the camera down and do our thing, it'll get that across. It'll establish that. No, a lot of the scenes that you see early on, they are set up like, all right, and uh, we have to do this scene where you're just getting here. Or, and we have to do this scene where we're dancing. So almost all of it is set up and we're doing a scene. We had the basic, this is what needs to, this is what this scene is going to add to the movie kind of thing. Like the, this may need to be said, or this is what the scene is like. We have to just talk about this. Um, but in terms of actual dialogue, there were very few lines that were written out. So, which is why I, did, I found it kind of, I saw a review on Letterboxd that said, um, the dialogue is so awkward. It's like, huh, that's funny. Cause we were just, talking I, you're yourself. like then i guess me and my friends are awkward <laughs> yeah it's the same thing when i see certain like i find most characters in found footage movies hella obnoxious aside from willow creek and, and whatever and so i'm like oh it'd be nice to have some characters that actually like each other and they're not like fighting and and i thought and then i'm still I'm, i think it's just because people are like have such an expectation i'm still seeing oh these people were insufferable Literally. That still so reminds like, me because I actually have it right in my notes that I loved that they weren't bickering through the whole movie because it's so often I, that false drama that people think they create by having people fight. Yeah. 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 It's kind of. And so. That's insufferable. This whole. Again, from the very beginning, I always knew I want these characters to like each other. They're not going to get into stupid fights. They're not going to talk about exposition. Yeah. Um, they're going to exist and. I'm going to cast people that are actually like lovely and, and, and nice. And like, and even with all of that, I still like these, um, I just, people are used to, I don't know, like they're looking for something or they're just like, you know what? I think that these people cool. are so obnoxious and insufferable. I'm like, really? I mean, then you probably like, wouldn't want to be my friend in real life. That's what I was going to say, though. Sometimes I think that just comes down to people really into, like, how they act with their group of friends and who their group of friends are. So if they're... Or what they're used to seeing in a movie. Or they just expect found footage characters to be insufferable. So if they're not liking the movie for some reason, that's, like, kind of... Their go-to criticism. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that's one of the criticisms I find, like, a little absurd that we're insufferable. Well, I mean, I, yeah. How could... I mean, maybe sometimes how, I am, but... How dare they? You're not insufferable. I think you're lovely. Um... How much, so you said a lot of your character is just kind of you. How much of it, like, like I mean, this character at a certain point, again, spoiler alert, gets to a, a point where he's, you know, like, he's had his head cracked open, crazy shit is going on. You know, at that point, any sense of you is sort of left behind because you're entering into that part of the project where it's, how did you kind of um, sort of prepare Play that stuff what was sort of you know how did you kind of play that stuff and how did you work out how you wanted to do that as an actor i don't all i know is that i saw an interview um when remember the movie l with isabel Huppert? yeah i saw an actress's i saw an actress round table and it was like all the actresses that year and they were all talking about like how hard it was to get home with them oh 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 and then when it got to Isabel Fouquier, she, she was just like, I don't know, I just, like, went and did the scene. <laughs> just like, I just did it. And that kind of stuck with me. So for these scenes, I'm like, well, I just, I'm going to 
I know what I, I want it to feel really like I'm fucked up and weird. And so I'm just going to go just be fucked up and weird, whatever that is. So that's my, that was my, for this, I obviously can't necessarily, it's a different kind of performance. So you can't, I can't just like necessarily do that for other, but for this, I just was like, well, I'm just going to go do it and, and feel fucked, like get and, and start making myself uncomfortable with what I'm doing. And then, you know, and then sometimes it wouldn't feel right. And I would just do it again. But that, that was my problem. I was just Isabel Cooper's, uh, I'm sure she does more than that, but that, her answer did help me. Well, that's sort of that classic thing, right? Of like from Marathon Man where Hoffman was all method and Olivia was like, just act. Don't get, what are you stressing yourself out yeah. so much for? Just go yeah. do the scene. And I acted yeah. like I was fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but there was something disturbing to, like, I wasn't like, upset in any late i wasn't i wasn't thinking of horrible thing you know yeah. just like all right you weren't like gonna... in a dark place between shots no no, yeah. no i was like girl let me get home so you can get a tequila <laughs> like there's sequences too in the film like like um there's one where i remember like scott is like he's like sunbathing or something he's lying out on a rock and he's like tanning and you come over and talk to him and stuff like that. Did you ever just like grab the camera and just start interacting with people? Or was that all like, did you say, yeah. Scott, go lie there and tan and I'm going to do this scene. Like how did, how did um, that kind of stuff go? Some of them I would be like, just go hang out up there and do your thing. And I'm, I'll probably film something. Some of it, I was just filming us actually setting things up or actually on the road. Like a, it's a total mix. Okay. For the overall effect to all feel 100% authentic and not like acting. Um, but yeah, it was, it's interesting cause I, it, there are many different methods to get the authenticity, which is in some, some cases very set up, but in other cases actually just filming real life. And it was interesting, um, blending them to, together. Like your, but yeah, no. your group of friends that are in this, are they all actors? No, no. Okay. So they, Michelle uh, was in movie or two like 10 years ago but she doesn't study or anything and um i don't think well Ange was in a lot of my movies for the pet, but like you know um and i knew she could act because we did some stuff where com we did comedy stuff we did scare like stuff where she had to really like get scared so i knew she could act but she didn't like study acting and scott didn't study acting but he's like kind of i don't know gave me group but he's like really smart and i knew that he would I just knew like he would be able to do whatever. Like, did you ever have to sort of remind them not to be self-conscious about the camera and just not think of it? Like, did you ever have to kind of say you you feel that felt a little contrived or forced? Like, just relax. Like, did you ever have to kind of give them help in that regard? Um, I'm sure in little moments, um, I would I would yeah give some feedback and have like maybe think about that, but not usually. Just for some little moments here and there um which is fun for me because honestly with the two found footage movies i haven't gotten to do as much as i was with the my previous stuff where did you, and where the desert is which desert are we looking at in this movie i'm trying i know this but i've forgotten the mojave desert okay um that's a you know a pretty stark potentially unforgiving environment did did that present any challenges while you were shooting um not really, other than that, like, we um, had to poop in the desert and bury it with dirt. Um, oh, so you so didn't, you didn't even have, like, porta potties or anything like that? 
No. Um, I, the scene where there's a rattlesnake, I did. That's just me actually almost stepping on a rattlesnake. So that's all real. That stressed me out because a snake isn't one of the few animals that I can't afraid of. I'm like, great. Yeah, I like. I I had wanted to get a rattlesnake for this movie and could not find one. And on like the last major shoot, like almost two and a half years after I started, I literally almost stepped on it and got it. And I luckily I was like filming and had the camera. So I'm like, yes, I got the rattlesnake finally. Uh, uh, like how far away were you from the rattlesnake? Um. I got about three feet from it. Three feet? Oh, my God. Weren't you Four scared? Mm-hmm. Dangerous I mean, you are talking to a person who went into the ocean and swam with the sharks in Miami when everybody else ran. <laughs> like, I am afraid. Like, I am. Like, I didn't want to get bit. And I know it's dangerous. But I felt I felt I was a safe enough distance. And its head was not pointed at me. Right. So I did not feel like it was going to strike. And I was very nervous the rest of the whole two days I had to spend there because I'm like, fuck. I mean, I always knew they were here, but I actually haven't seen one. Now I'm like, fuck. Especially when I'm running around in the actual desert, in the actual darkness. Dark, yeah. Like, actually running around in the dark, can't see. So that, so, yeah. There was, uh, you know, there's all, like, what, scorpions and all kinds of... Well, I wanted to get a scorpion. I couldn't find one. Oh, I thought they'd be, like, all over the place. They probably were, but I, I, I really wanted a scorpion. I couldn't find one. Um, when you got into all the night shooting stuff and, uh, you know, like the, the storm, for example, which, you know, great for creating sort of tension and a foreboding quality. Like, how did you sort of, did you just keep an eye on the weather and then make sure you were shooting the night there was a storm? Um, there was, uh, no real storm. Oh, it was all, that was all phony. Yeah, we were pretending there was a storm. Oh, I thought it, 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 it uh, is there lightning? There's lightning, or am I thinking of just the shuddery kind of voidy look? You're thinking of there's definitely certain kinds of light things happening, but those um, were created by me. So what? And what about the earthquake? How'd you how'd you state that shit early on in the film when that the house is shaking and all that? How did you do that? Um, I. Uh, Pretended I was in an earthquake. And Did you filmed. just like rattle everything and then go immediately hit record so that everything was still moving kind of a thing? It was actually really, for as raw as it looks, the one, a couple of those shots are really elaborately, um, what do you call it? Blocked. Like I had to make sure that I moved this one thing while, and then got to this other point as a, um, as the things from the, the fan are swaying and then by the time i get to a like table it has to already be shaking so it, those are very story uh, not story but they're very blocked i i rehearsed though that's just me here by myself rehearsing it but like those are based on two back-to-back earthquakes that we had in los angeles in 2019 i think um so yeah um the reason there's two and they're kind of back to back ish is because that's what happened. <laughs> did you? But did you want to get those in the movie to create again sort of a sense of a foreboding quality? Just sort of you know things are unstable, things are the ground beneath you is shaking. You know what I mean? That creates a yeah and and tension. And I wanted to get us to give the audience a sense that my character is interested in, and this is I'm interested in natural, but not so I'm filming storms i'm filming wind i'm filming 
the earthquakes. I, I'm really interested in natural, invisible phenomena, but that is science. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, that was also an opportunity to get that in there. Right. Um, one of the things I have to give you credit for, by the way, is your fake blood was really on point with the color. Well, I can't stand when I see a fucking like fifty million dollar movie and it's like purple or like clear. So yeah, the blood was great. I was like, oh, that's perfect color. I'm I'm a stickler for good fake blood. It's it's a science. It's tough to get it right. Um, uh, lighting. Did you use a lot of lights, or was it mostly like reflectors and stuff like that? No, there was no lighting. Yeah, you had no electrolytes, no artificial lighting. It was all natural. No lighting. Yeah, no. And I, I, that was another thing, you know, this, this is a criticism I see, but to me it is not. It, it was always, hey, this is what it looks like when you're in the desert with, and I don't even have a small flashlight that I'm, I have a blood light, but that's what it looked like on camera. Yeah. So, so for when I was looking, I'm like, all right, well, I guess this is what it, I, I really tried to follow the actual like truth and logic of how it would be filmed. Um, so I just, I was like, well, this is kind of a small beam of light, but I'm not going to make, I'm just going to, you know, this is what it looks like on my camera with this light in the desert. So that's why it's the way it is. So. It's a, it's an odd thing for an audience to say that to me, because like, there's so much of the film that is like in daylight that is like these vast where we see like everything so when it gets you know, night, it's like it's to me it's like you you did we know what this environment looks like you've shown us what i thought i do find this criticism i i well, let me say this i understand why people get turned off and frustrated that i'm not but the criticism that like uh it's because i didn't have a budget i'm trying to hide things. like no this was all very me being committed to the truth of what this would look like that's a weird criticism anyway because as a filmmaker that is a reality of making a movie you do like have to hide things sometimes like we don't want to show light stands and the guy moving the tentacles like that's part of filmmaking that's a weird complaint i don't know the other thing is it's actually not that much of it is is this little there's really not that much i'm sure if i totaled the minutes of the tiny beam of light it would be much less than people, you know, think it is. A lot of the stuff at night, you can see a lot of it, or just as much as I want you to see. Right. Not because I'm yeah. trying to hide something because I couldn't afford it. I, I'm like my, the spe- oh, I sound like a pompous a little bit, but whatever. Like, the, <laughs> you see fully the special effects in broad daylight for like minutes on end, multiple times throughout the movie. I'm not trying to hide anything. It's just called like choices. Well, I just, yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I watched the movie twice to just, you know, so I, because I was going to be talking to you about it. And like, I never felt like those choices were there to like hide, you know, a cord to move a tentacle or whatever. Like, it just didn't, that never occurred to me. But, but I think it comes to also like, again, like we were talking about a little earlier. It's like, if you come to a movie and you're one of those fucking annoying people who's like trying to defeat the movie, or you're like, oh, well, that's why you did that. Like, if you bring that shit to it, you can, kind of find problems with almost any movie if you want to look at it that way. I mean, that's... Well, this, my relationship to criticism, I, I decided this is my first movie that's coming out into the world, so I'm just going to really try to read everything and decide what I want my relationship 
to be to criticism. So I am just reading everything on Letterboxd, all the reviews, all the things people are saying on Twitter, comment sections on YouTube. I'm reading everything. Um, again, I'm totally get why a lot of people don't, or, you know, like are put off by it or it's just not their thing or they just get frustrated. That's not. The thing I have the biggest issue with is when people state things as fact that are not true. Um, like the, yeah, like, oh, well, he made it like this because uh, he was trying to hide that he didn't have any money to make things. Like, that's not true. That's an assumption. Mm-hmm. And if and it, I wouldn't have a problem with it if the person was like, oh, maybe this. You know, but it's just when things are stated so boldly as fact that I know are not true. Because you made the fucking um, thing. Yeah. I made it. Yeah. And there were, then that's what really annoys me and makes me want to go say something. I, I mostly haven't. The only thing I responded to was there was a critic's review, which was stupid. And he, he said that um, the director, it, like, he called me a smug director. I never met him. Called, I mean, I may, may, maybe I'm sounding smug here, but uh, he called me a smug director who must have just like thought it was really easy to make a horror movie and it required no effort. Wow, that's harsh. But, I'm a smug director who, who assumed that making a horror movie, um, like... That's very strange a, to me for a critic. Now, is this a proper critic, or is this, like, a guy no, who has a blog? It's not a proper... But but <laughs> it's still designed as though he's a proper critic. This is the thing. Your whole sentence right there, dude, was an assumption, and that's what you're accusing me of, and you're actually the one being smug. So that one I did kind of, like, Get annoyed by it. Now I can come off as smug, and I recognize that. So I, I granted him that, and I tweeted a picture of like me with looking really hot with like five cigarettes in my mouth and like my jersey pose. But then I just I just needed to say something about that laugh. Like I I don't get smug I, from you. I get like cheeky. Use the uh, yeah. word. Well, I mean, I'm sure my I I know that my first impression. A lot of people that are now my friends say their first impression of me when they meet me is is standoffish and kind of like a dick. Um, which is probably just like a defense mechanism for being like picked on early in school and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I am confident in myself in a lot of ways, so maybe that can come off as whatever. The smug thing was just kind of like, ew, you don't know me, bitch. Well, it's not a critic's um, job to comment on your personality. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It was that latter part where it's like, oh, this filmmaker it just stated as fact. He assumed that it was uh, no effort to make a horror movie. What? I spent three years on this. So if you want to say that you thought it was a piece of shit and all my, you know, whatever, but like to just state as fact that I assumed it was going to be a walk in the park, like, no, what? No. Like, just not true. So those are the things that bother me. Yeah. It also bothers me when people don't realize that the music is diegetic. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's, it's funny because when I was watching the movie too, there's certain things in it where I was like, you know, I think that as a filmmaker and as an actor, you know, like, there were certain bullshit. Like, there's the, the sequence your character undresses and he walks in front of the camera and you, as an actor, are standing there stark naked in front of the camera. To, like, it fit the fabric of the movie and the slipping sanity of these characters, but there, I could easily see someone being like, did this guy just want to, like, get himself naked on camera? Or, like, is this a... Yeah, that's what I really want. Especially because my dick looks so small in those <laughs> shots. And it's actually not. And, like, if I really was that, like, if that's what I was trying to do, I would have, like, plant, uh, you know. That, was, anyway, that, was, that wasn't what you were going for. <laughs> no. Um, n- um, 
Oh man. Like you, it's funny because you down. talk to me about being self-conscious or self-aware of looking a certain way on camera. And like mm-hmm. to then undress and go and stand in front of the camera, like that takes a certain amount of confidence and a certain like, you know, unless you're going, well, this is just how I look and this is my body and I'm comfortable with it. Like what was sort of, you know, for you, did you have to kind of get a little like, okay, I just have to not overthink this, like to, 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 to commit to getting um, on screen with no clothes on is a certain, you know, it's a choice. No. Well, there's certain like things I'm comfortable with on myself and certain things I'm not. And, you know, like mostly it's due to my face is what I'm self-conscious. So like um, at that time, I was not self-conscious about my ass or anything or whatever. Um, Although, I mean, and obviously I go, I, I think I become pretty un, like pretty, what do you call it? When you're off, pretty off-putting. So it's not like a vanity thing. Like I want people to love me. Look how sexy um, I am. Right. Yeah, it, it was, Um, I just don't want to have a movie that I'm in forever and have to look at a shot of my face that I'm like, ew, you know what I mean? It's more like that. Right. <laughs> I don't mind looking like a crazy, but, but it's just some weird little like, thing. Now, this is something you're going to have one of two answers to, and I, uh, I'm not going to tell you what my preference is, but it leads to two different lines of questions. I'll just be honest. Yeah, do it. Uh, do you? This is one of those movies that creates... For me, like I was watching it and I'm having these questions. I'm like, what is the thing? What's the monster? What is the thing in the sky? Who's the guy with the eye? Did you have answers to those questions or were you, are you, did you approach this film as going, it doesn't really matter what that stuff is. It's just, it's there to create a feeling. Well, people who assume things um, on Letterboxd would tell you that it was just kind of throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and like whatever. And it's just an excuse. Keeping it vague was an excuse to not really have to tell a story properly. So, no. From the very beginning, there's a very specific event and idea for a threat that the whole movie is designed around. Uh, everything that you see is designed around a very specific set of things that happen um, in the desert. And but obviously, I I um wanted to take that design and mix it all around because it's supposed to, you know, chaos and how that would be. So there's a million tiny clues, some big clues. There's all kinds of things in there. Everything is in there that based on the, the initial idea. By design. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it, the, the movie is designed and then taken apart to feel what it would feel like if the event was happening. Like you don't have to, you don't have to answer this. You can if you oh, yeah. if you if you're able to. Uh, but like the, the the silhouette we see of the guy with the axe. Mm-hmm. Does that guy have uh, in your mind? Is there an identity to who this guy is and why mm-hmm. we're seeing him? Can you share that or is yeah. that something no. people do? Right. I knew you. No, and it's not. Like, <laughs> I knew you. No. Say that. <laughs> well, it's it's for certain movies. I would wouldn't. Have, but for this, I feel like I'll just say I saw a movie that I loved very much, and it was very much a movie that you could take. A few different ways i really thought it was about something and it was like brilliant and then i heard the director say this is what it was about and i was like that's actually like that kind of that not ruins the movie for me because it did work both ways but i was like that's not i don't want to hear the director tell me that in, in that movie's case every movie's different for this movie it despite me designing everything around a very specific thing it was always also supposed to be um, that you can 
form theories and they're not necessarily like there's so much design in this that there are so many ways you can piece it together and have a cohesive um story that makes sense for what happened and i like for example i read a a really well-written long like thought out review trying to explain everything and they were putting all these things together that i didn't even, like think about at all and it was so cool and then what and then you, that then i come on like you know i'm like oh yeah well that was actually about this and then that's just like shitty and lame and it's like not fun for this movie okay. i'm not saying that for but for this it's just not fun but yes uh everything yeah has a purpose part of the purpose is chaos i mean it's one of the words that i kept seeing when i was I, so I went and started reading reviews and articles and stuff about the movie. And one word I kept seeing, and I was like, I wonder what your relationship to this word is, was Lovecraftian. Is that a word you have a relationship I to? I, I haven't read Lovecraft. I have all his stuff. I want to read Lovecraft. I have not read a single. I read like a paragraph of um, At the Mouth of Madness, yep. like the opening paragraph. Yeah. So, but uh, I know... Cliche wise, what Lovecraftian is like slithery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like <laughs> slithery things and they come out of a, weird, weirdness. Also, and, and I, as I, a suggestion of of alternate timelines or dimensions that things come, they they leak through into our world, and that kind of concept is part. Of yeah, that. so I, I totally get it. I especially because of the slithery thing. Right, but that's what I think. Slithery things and like weirdness and like. Yeah, but I haven't actually read any Lovecraft. Um, but I do know that Lovecraft is also like poet, like very poetic. So um, I'm excited to read The Mouth of Madness or In the Mouth of Madness at, at the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, but there's some like Dagon is a great Poe or Poe um, Lovecraft piece you should read. One he did called it's, it's Shadow Over Innsmouth. It's called, but it's about like kind of uh, this guy who finds this island that's like fish people. And it's really great. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a great book. Um, but it has even this tone of like this otherworldly quality leaking into our world. And that's kind of that to me was like where even though you're telling me you haven't read Lovecraft, when I kept seeing that word show up, it's like, I get it. It does there is that Yeah, I get it. Too. Yeah, it makes I get it too, based on my very very basic like images in my head when I hear Lovecraft. But it's funny because if you haven't read Lovecraft, what do you think influenced your decisions then to have these Lovecraft, you know, it's the slitheriness, the void, this kind it, of stuff. So there, there was a very early on, which a very specific initial idea for the threat and the event that sets all this in motion. And I literally just followed the logic to me of, um, I just followed the logic of the threat. And that's, so certain things came out of that and just from thinking and, you know, using your imagination basically and then but that's so yeah i don't know it just came out of my brain thing um you associate one thing with another thing you know that this scientific thing you've heard something well that that's like a bunch of mouth garbage that i just said right <laughs> but yeah i explored the logic of the idea mouth garbage it was funny because when i started watching the movie i had this I, my assumption and i was dead wrong was it was going to be like a slow burn movie? It's not really. At a certain point, it it the chaos kicks in. The movie kind of it, it just dives into the abyss and it doesn't turn back. And it was like funny because I it was not the tone I felt prepped for. And I love I love that about the movie that 
any assumption I had about what the movie was going to be was kind of wrong. And I'd like to be I surprised. Have, I have described it as slow burn, but there's also a truth to what you're... So there's, it was always supposed to be like kind of normalcy and then completely ripped apart and like a split in half kind of tone change. But at the same time, I always did think of it as a, in a different way, a slow burn where there's not this like slow burn, in, like creeping music setting that... The, um, but there are lots of little tiny details and that have a little bit of omeny stuff in the background or underneath, but it's all, I tried to keep everything very natural and casual. So in United, do you see United 93? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So United 93, for example, there's that famous, um, from like the reporting or the audio call, they're like talking about rolling the the tray down the aisle, like, um, and in one movie, in the made-for-TV movie, Flight 93, it's like this big moment, this rallying cry, roll, whatever. In United 93, it was just almost like, they weren't even thinking, just said it kind of casually, like, all right, let's roll it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to keep all the... Omen, Doom, Expedition stuff, super casual for, for most of it. Which I think is why some people are like, this is, um, nothing's happening. There is a lot happening, but I could see why people might think. Well, yeah, if they're looking at their phones and shit too, it wouldn't help because you have to pay. Attention. Well, I can't, I can't even, I can't. Also, I, <laughs> I found out that, like, all right, listen, if you're a movie critic, please get a fucking TV and watch it like, if your job is to review movies, why are you watching it on a laptop? Like, so when, when your publicist sent me the screening for this, I took... Did you watch it on a laptop? No, I took the time to connect it to my big screen. With, I took my laptop, connected it to an HDMI cable, and put it on my big screen to my surround sound and everything. Turned off all the lights, watched it at night, made sure to create the right. Because I feel like that's your responsibility as an audience. If you're going to watch yeah, someone's movie, um, be a good audience member. And if you happen to be a critic that wrote a review of The Outwaters and you're listening to this, yes, I am insulting you. Please go get a fucking TV if your job is to, like, review. <laughs> I just can't imagine, like, looking at, you know, what, whether it's a piece of shit or, like, some, like just, like, um, grading and um, critiquing something seen in the way that it's not all supposed to be seen. Like, no one should... I understand some people have to, um, you know, I totally get, that. I had to watch stuff on my laptop for a long time, but I wasn't a movie critic, but, um, uh, I yeah. get it for audience members sometimes, but yeah, it just seems like such a, I had no, I, I had no idea that like, yeah, like, I, I feel like, can't there be something where it's like, yeah, we'll send this to you if you can actually screen it properly. Like, well, it's, I knew a critic, I'm not going to say who they are cause that would be terrible to do this to them, but, but I've, I actually like laid into them for this. They got into a bad habit of watching screeners on their phone. And I was like, no, no, no. It's irresponsible. It's, and that's, I'm getting, I feel like I'm so, sounding so <laughs> hostile. But, <laughs> but I am just getting out a lot of things I think are worth saying. No, it's, I think it's, because it, it's different, right? Like, I'm not a critic. I talk to filmmakers about their movies, but I'm not, a, I don't review their movies. 
And I generally have people on because I liked their movies. I wouldn't bring someone on to be like, so your movie wasn't my thing, but let's chat about it. Like, that's fucking... I kind of want to go on someone's podcast who really hated it and, like, said some shit. I kind of want to go on. You just because you're, well, you're a Jerry Springer fan. Of course you do. Not to be a grab, but I, I think it would be kind of funny. Would do you think you would be like just defensive? Or it would be interesting. Do you think you? No, I think I would try to gen like for all the shit I'm saying. Like I, I, I've said to so many people on Twitter that are talking shit on a movie, and then and then people who like the movie start getting into fights with them, and I, I, I try to find those and just go in as my own. I'm like, hey, like y'all, it's totally okay if they don't like the movie. I don't like many movies, like so. It's not like that. It's more. Um, I, I, I actually. So if that were someone brought me on and they were, um, had kind of like said some shitty things or said things that were not true that were assumptions, and it would annoy, I would actually be very mindful of trying to just like uh, get somewhere and not just go on to like puff my peacock feather. You know what I mean? Was it kind of disappointing that I liked the movie? No, 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 I'm not, no, this is all, this is all me thinking of this stuff after, like, the past day, just, like, reading certain, certain specific things. I just think it would be interesting to have a discourse with someone who's saying, yeah, but, yeah, a a non, like, yeah, I just think it'd be an interesting, because, because everyone, you know, that's uncomfortable, so, like, it doesn't really happen that often, um, so just as someone who likes watching awkward things, I also, kind of like oh that'd be like interesting for people this person hated the movie talk to the director and and have the director not be like an asshole and, and defensive and aggressive you know what i mean yeah i think it's interesting too like what one of the things i've always live loved on this podcast when i have filmmakers on and directors and actors or whatever is like because i'm a filmmaker and that's my background something george romero told me that always stayed with me and because it, it's so true is he was like, look, it's it takes just as much time and energy to make a bad movie as it does to make a good movie. So no mm-hmm. one so no one sets out to make what people describe as a bad movie, typically. Of course, there are people who are like, we're gonna make a good bad movie, and those are always this shit, because they're if you try to make a bad movie. Bad movies that are good because they're shitty, like, you know, people like the room or whatever. If if you're self-conscious about that, it never works. You have to it has to authentically be bad to be a good bad movie. But anyway, I do. I don't. I can't watch the Sci-Fi Channel intentionally bad movies. Like I just can't. Why? Yeah, it's a point. Uh, but I always think like it's interesting for me. Like as when I'm watching a movie, to see, you know, a lot of critics or people that that are reviewing these movies are, are not filmmakers, and some of the things they comment on where because I am a filmmaker and I know what goes into, it, I'm like, no, you're wrong. That's not at all what that was or what that person was doing you've assumed something because you don't understand a process um i think it's it, that's why for me sometimes i i will get defensive reading a review of someone's movie on their behalf yeah <laughs> like yeah. you know and i would like to inspire um if i uh, just i'm sure i may be coming off from time to time on this as being defensive about the movie but i would just like to say i'm very happy with it and i wouldn't change anything about it <laughs> um after reading all this all the criticisms I'm seeing, except for the one about me being smug. Um, cheeky. I've, 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 I, I yeah, got cheeky. the... Come on, people. It's not smug. Cheeky. I, uh, I got all those criticisms during the whole time I was screening it, test screening it, and I decided against them for whatever reason. So I'm um, not... I'm, like, happy with them. I'm just... There are certain things that I find uh, the ones that are not just simply, like, factually inaccurate that I would like to 
You know what I think is harder is if you if you finish your movie and you realize that you didn't make the movie you wanted. I think that's hard. And and that's why I stopped making that college one after the first shot. I was like, no fucking way. You know, waste everybody's time with this shit. You know, <laughs> it was gonna be bad. Um, the gas mask and the sign feels like a major clue to me. Is it? I mean, it's there. But is it an important one? It feels like it is. Um, seems so. <laughs> but even with that, even with that, there's multiple reasons. Like, there's multiple. Yes, it's an important one, but there are multiple different things that can come out of that. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's not like a key. It's not an it's answer. Just, it's just a f- not an answer. So you can take away a few different strong theories from that and um but it is important that's why it, yeah when you're uh in the movie i was thinking this i had this thought and I, this comes i think from me being in the position where i've acted in my own films and made movies where i've had to stop myself when you're like walking around in the desert and you've just castrated yourself and you're holding your own <laughs> guts did yeah. you ever have that moment where you thought to yourself my job is different than other people's i'm sh- yeah i think a couple times but i was thinking like this is so funny and fun that this is what go and then certain things like this you find yourself ordering certain things from Amazon for the new, like <laughs> random things like fishing line, uh, marshmallows, uh, like just totally random moments like that more so. Um, I know I think Scott had more of those moments when we were filming. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is kind of funny that like this is what we're doing right now yeah. because like. It is yeah yeah um, um, but my moments are more spent on like looking at the things I just bought on Amazon that I needed for this movie like weird things. One of the things I was reading too in some of the articles and reviews and stuff was the film and you as a filmmaker being grouped into you know what some critics and art writers are describing as like a new wave of of gay filmmakers making horror. <laughs> A wave of like two or three people. And I was like, and then they cite two other examples. Kyle Wall, who did Skinnerink, and uh, what is the other one? Uh, the World's Fair one. I can't remember the name. What's the title? The full title. Jane Strom. Thank you. Jane Strom. Um, but also, yeah, yeah. So it's. Is that something you identify with in any way? Like when you read that, are you like, oh, cool? Or are you just like, whatever? Like, how, do you, how does that. I was just curious what kind of. In reading that, how that would affect you as a, as a filmmaker? Um. No, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, there's no movement that I'm aware of. It just so happens that Kyle and I made our movies around the same time and are coming around the same time. And they're both a little bit, um, divisive and we're both around the same age and have a little bit of the same story. And then we're all going to the world. So, um, I mean, I don't know, like, if, and, and we have Carter Smith who swallowed just came out, which I really love. Um, He's a gay, so I mean, um, Dutch who did horror in the high desert, but yeah, when they're talking about it, it's usually like skin and rink, um, hours and all growing, so it doesn't. No, I don't. I identify with it in that, um, it. Yeah, they're we're all gay people, queer, gay, whatever the word is. Yeah, yeah, but um. It doesn't feel like a wave to me. No, it feels like me and Kyle made a movie around the same time. It's funny too because I read that, and I didn't have a a feeling about that as a gay person myself who also makes films. It was like a thing where I was like, 
Yeah, but it's not part of the fabric of, like, you're a gay person and your character in the movie presumably is intended to still be a gay person. Uh, it's never talked about or discussed. Mm-hmm. No attention is drawn to it. So to me, I'm just, I'm just kind of like, yeah, it's there and it's part of yeah, your yeah, narrative yeah. as a human being. But I don't know that it's as self-conscious as a movement suggests or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, well, they're talking just about the fact that we are just skin, scammering also doesn't have anything overtly like no not at all but you to get so trapped in I it. About, like you know it's i think what it really is which i agree it's it's nice you know some i i've gotten really nice messages like it's really nice to see like a a gay or queer filmmaker going out so i think in that sense that's why it's i think that that's nice yeah and um and i'm i'm i want to use that as an opportunity to like auction a, a prop off and donate to the Rainbow Rail, Railroad, which gets like um, gay people out of countries that uh, it's dangerous. For, like, so I think it's all nice, and I. But yeah, I don't. I don't feel like it's necessarily a move, um, a queer cinema movement. I think we just happen to, um, be not straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's funny too because it, it in a way. I think horror has always been fairly friendly on some levels, more so than other genres to queer filmmakers. There's a a long-standing history of queer genre filmmakers that goes back to like James Whale, and you know you can you can work your way through as a film historian the many genre filmmakers who are gay. Um, and do you think sort of you know this is getting a bit I don't know maybe I'm overthinking this, but I think horror does kind of has always been sort of a good island of for misfit toys, like people who were who who didn't fit in with like the jocks and like the the preppy people in their school or whatever. Always kind of felt signaled by this genre that it was a safer space for them. Do you think that there's anything to that? I think there is probably something to the, the, the outcast. I mean, if you know, like the horror fans are the most, including myself, are the most enthusiastic love to talk about how much they hate something, love something, get excited about every fucking trailer, every, like, so excited. You don't see that with drama. Or, you see it with, like, Star Wars, yeah. but that's a very specific. Yeah, right. But the horror community, and, and, and I, I, now I've always known these people, been meeting these people, now I'm meeting more of them. There's just such a, um, yeah, so I think there must be some kind of innate, like, thing, otherness or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, even when you think of that so many horror movies, you know, like I think of for me as a young gay kid watching so many horror movies where the the hero was a woman, you know, and an empowered girl. Like even just that was something you didn't see in a lot of other genres where where, you know, in like action movies, the girl was always just like eye candy for this straight dudes watching it. You know what I mean? Like to me to be able to relate to Laurie Strode or Heather Langenkamp in Freddy movie, you know what I mean? Like. I think that for a gay person is part of why the genre is a little more of a space that you can, that you feel you can connect to on some level. Yeah, um, there, there definitely, there's something there, and there's something like, yeah, there's definitely something. I just don't know what it is. I'm not, I don't have that type of mind that can figure, you know, think about those things yeah. properly. Yeah. Um, I'd have to like really study a book on it and then like reread it and take notes and take it to a quiz like my yeah so i'm kind of bad at thinking about stuff like that. but i do f- sense that uh there is a yeah like you said, the island of misfit toys 
Yeah, Island of Misfits was, yeah. That's yeah, that's that's kind of I always think of like that that notion for me of like, like I don't know how old you were when you came out, but like, you know, that's always a important part of it. Eighteen. Eighteen. I was twenty one. And it was like that thing of like when I think of the fact that because I was heavily involved in theater and there was always a theatricality to me and I was obsessed with Tim Curry and Rocky Horror at like twelve and I'm like there's the, there's your idea of coming out, and then there's probably the perception people had of you way earlier than that. It could be very different realities. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I think that horror for me was just like a space where I could like tap into that and not worry about what, you know, it was safer that you could say you're a horror fan and I didn't feel like I was tipping my hat too much, but I was kind of like, there's a code behind that for me. Like, you know, these movies kind of get me more than other genres that did you have movies that you remember seeing, you know, before and maybe when you were younger that you were like, I feel like I'm tapping into this movie in a certain way that I that that a person who is not a gay person might not, even if it wasn't intended that way? Maybe the birds. The birds? Just like well, I don't know. That's just what's coming to my head because oh my god, how much do I love fucking Annie Hayworth and um oh my god, Melanie Daniels, like they're a little bitchy, but they like kind of are really cool and a good duo, like and all the beautiful. So I don't know, maybe not in an emotional way, but that's just what came to my head. The birds is like so gay to me just because it's like it's so fucking beautiful, perfect. Like it's just so that probably is not the right answer. That's not the, where you're going with that. But no, it's a great. It's because it's, 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 Annie Hayworth is like fucking awesome. I, Hitchcock is like as an interesting for a director who was very stately and had these very formal movies. He also is a director who had gay characters in his movies when nobody else was doing it. Strangers on a Train was designed to be about two gay men, closeted gay men who who are and have this sexual tension and Hitchcock embrace that so i think that you can find that in his movies for sure uh, people just don't cite them oh there were definitely movies in high school when i was starting to become more aware of stuff that were very special to me in that way i mean like well really six feet under the show mm-hmm. um like i was coming out of i was in the closet when david was in the closet i was in high school when claire was in high school in real time as the show was airing and then when, when claire went to college i went to college art school there's a very lot of parallels there and then specific movies like um ginger snaps like all these like outcast i probably related to those a lot without realizing it because of the gay stuff where wherever there was like a outcast may character. i think of yeah. may is one of those we were talking about that earlier may ginger snaps donnie darko yeah. um yeah those yeah um what was the distribution road like for for the for your movie like how did it sort of did you start playing festivals and find distribution that route or how did you come to get dis- your distribution deals um so basically, I you know I, I did initially make the movie without um, any crew or a producer, anyone but me and my friends. And then Bo, who I used to work with at After Dark Films, came on once I had basically completed the movie, and I didn't know how to do the other stuff, like legal, stuff right? And producing um, on the once you have finished the movie stuff. Um, but the road was, I always, this was always the plan was to make a good, I think it's make a, try to make a good horror movie. I felt like if it's good, it'll get into some festivals of note. 
And if it's good, then it'll get bought because there's, you know, there's all kinds of movies. But I just wanted my movie to stand out a little bit um, and be scary and pure subjective. So some people can maybe appreciate the movie and not be scared by it or be scared or whatever. But the plan was to get it into festivals so it would get good reviews and get bought. And so what happened in our case was got into a few festivals, got good reviews out of out of them. Uh, that led to more festivals. And I think Cinedime, Bloody Disgusting, someone there saw it at Panic Fest. Um, and then they reached out because they liked it. And I just made sure they were cool. And I made sure the a thing that was actually really important to me, which my bow, my producer was like, what? Is like, no, it has to have a Blu-ray release or it's not like, for, for me, that's not like a real, that, that sounds horrible. If it, that I, oh. But for me, it was important to have a physical I'm media. Totally release. get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, they they we just spoke the same language. I immediately trusted them. Like Brandon at Cinedime understood what I was talking about when I said we need a reversible sleeve and a clear case. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it was. It's really like I I I want to say I got lucky with that, but I'm ha- so happy that they reached out and wanted it, and they really do care about it like they really do care about it i only was like i would like to be in a theater in la in a theater in new york just so it for my ego no just because i find it wanted to be in play in even one theater in each of those places because those are my two like where i lived you know yeah and you know and they yeah no they just really believed in it and continue to believe in it and they like it so they want they want people to see. so it's just been great but it, they saw it at a festival to answer your question. Was there a, a moment for you, you know, that stands out of seeing the movie or with an audience or reading something where you went, oh, wow, like ignoring the people who don't like the movie, whoever they are, where you were like, this is working for people. Like there are people who are, are getting what I was trying to do here. Did you have like a, a clear moment uh, of that nature? Um, no, there were, well, really, to be honest, um, when Scott, thought it was good which wasn't he never thought it was bad but when scott thought it was um moved from like entertainment or or like more into the realm of a piece that's when because he he's he's very intelligent he's also very like picky in a great way about what he reads and watches and he smells bullshit like you know a mile away mm-hmm. and even little moment like he'll like even little moments in, in movies like so i just once he thought it was like a thing that's probably the clearest moment for me i was like huh um but i had been i have i have a process of test screening where like i have people come over and i have them fill out like three page things you do your own test screenings i love that <laughs> yeah like the whole this is all test screenings for uh, X Valis. Yeah. So, and I, I really make them, I, I apply them with um, a drink, and I say, you have to fill this out before you leave, and I sit there while they do it. No, so I, it, it's really important to me to know how the um, audience is reacting, because I did not make the movie for me, just me. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. do want people to. A certain, I want there to be people that 
really like it. And, you know, so, um, so I go through very consistent years long with this years long test screenings and feedback and not just my friends. I show, I send it to people who don't know me. Um, I, I, I sometimes like for Xvalis, I had a whole test screening showing with like 40 people. Um, and then I look at all that, consider it, play with things. That's why when I see actual criticisms or things that people don't like, it that doesn't get to me or bother. I've I've heard it all before this ever went to the first festival, right? And I decide, you know, like I said, I decide. Uh, it's yeah. So um, now, once again, I forgot the question, but lots of test screening, and I do incorporate feedback, and I take better ideas if they're presented, and I'm like. That's awesome. So people's critical feedback has made the movie um, a lot better than it initially was. But the moment was when Scott was like, he's just so picky in a great way. Yeah, right. Um, well, tell me a bit about like what you have coming up next. You, you talked, you've talked a bit about X-Valis. Like, tell me a bit more about what, what's, what's coming down the road for you. Uh, Tinsman Road is the, my next feature. It's the third feature I filmed but the second feature to be coming out. Um, and that will premiere at the Unnamed Footage Festival in San Francisco. Um, March 24th is when it's playing at the Balboa Theater. Um, and that's, uh, for people who didn't like the Outwaters, this is more straightforward. It's more traditional storytelling. It's still hopefully artful, but it's not a confusing, weird thing. It's it's more character-based and... and um, that kind of thing. I'm, and for dorks like me, I shot it on mini DV, so it's got the actual vibe of that <laughs> early two thousands. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also at that same festival. They're gonna, um, play the two companion films that go along with the Outwaters back to back as like a double feature. One of them is called a prequel memory card, called Card Zero. And that shows my relationship with my character's boyfriend that felt falls apart uh, before the Outwaters begins. Okay. It's essentially a memory card that the police find at my apartment. It's like the last memory card my character used before I went off to the de- took the other ones off to the desert. So that's its own little contained thing, but also it adds a lot of character context to the Outwaters. Um, it's like my little Woody Allen-esque neurotic, cringy, like, gay relationship stuff. Um, and then there's the epilogue called File VL624 that is comprised of um, restored, corrupted footage from all four of the memory cards that the police try to put back together. Um, and it, it's, uh, it, that's the most ambitious project I've ever worked on it's a 20 minute epilogue thing of restored footage from these cameras but it's just the most elaborate and abstract and experimental thing it's actually that's actually way more like skin and rink than outwaters and when i watched skin and rink i was i called kyle and i was like oh, i'm just so you know like i didn't i just saw skin and rink and when you watch this one like there's just a lot of similar similarities with those two you just wanted to assure him that you hadn't ripped them off or anything 
Yeah, basically, because I mean, I, when I saw Skin and Ring, I'm like, oh my god, there's, I mean, they're very different, but there's also this one central thing that is very much the same. It's, it, it's, it's interesting. So maybe there is something to that queer movie. <laughs> and is that like, but no, will these shorts be like on the Blu-ray with Outwater? They were, I made them after I made Outwaters with, so the Outwaters was made on its own, and then I had these two ideas, and I filmed most of them and crafted them after I had already finished the Outwaters. They were made specifically for the Blu-ray release. However, I do believe they will be streaming at some point along with the Outwaters, um, maybe added to the bonus features in like Apple Store. They'll be on the Blu-ray for sure. They should be streaming. And they'll, they'll be playing in a movie theater back-to-back, which will be really fun. For people who are interested in the Outwaters and like that, the, they can go see those on the big screen. Do you have a Mark. a release date for the Blu-ray yet, or are you still waiting on that? No release date, but it'll probably likely be like summer. Okay, gotcha. Like the old days when you had to wait like almost a year for like Jurassic Park to come out on VHS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now it seems like that window is so short. The movie will be in the theater. It's very short. Yeah, it's in the theater, and then like a month and a half later, you can buy it. Yeah, so. I'm trying to do some extra cool stuff for the blu-ray so i i'm not in a um there is a deadline when i have to get stuff in but there's a couple of things i want to make i still have to make for it that are i think people will really like who are interested in, in the movie so um, i want the blu-ray to be in world stuff like that's why those two extra files is do you have a distributor for the blu-ray already or is that not happening i'm i don't i don't think i can say i'm i'm not sure if i'm allowed so but yeah we do cool and are you gonna get a clear case with a slip cover yes nice <laughs> That's how it should be. This is what I'm saying. Like the they Brandon and Brad at Fly Disgusting Cinema, they speak my language. No, I get you. I mean, like you can't see my space right now, but it's full of clear case movies with slip covers. So I totally get you. Yeah. Like I actually am a dork and I bought thousands of clear cases to replace the blue. I hate the way a Blu-ray looks. I hate the blue case. I think it's ugly. So I just like I that there's one place called Case Topia. Yeah. One place that sells these. Ugh. I still have to get thousands more, like another thousand. <laughs> and you literally just take the time to swap them all out and throw away the, the blue ones? That's like a fun day for me. I put on some like uh, Django Reinhardt and like swap out some Blu-rays. And I'm like, oh, this looks so much prettier. Like, seriously, do you find, uh, maybe, maybe I find the blue case of a Blu-ray to be ugly. Well, I think it feels dated to me, too, because, like, when they first came out, it was, like, because it's blue, right, in the title. And, yeah. yeah, it just takes away from the, what it really is, is it takes away from the art. Because otherwise, you, like, on old school DVDs, you would have a black case, and that kind of allows the art to be prominent. Yeah. Or you have, like, a clear case, even on DVDs, allows the, but on Blu-rays, the blue just really doesn't, almost always clashes with the art. Yeah, totally. Fucking what? Yeah, so you've got some of these like vinegar syndrome and stuff. Some of these great kind of more boutique distributors that put out like these great slips and stuff like that to really let the movie not look like that. Thank God for these places. I know. I'm with you. Well, um, thank you for coming and talking with me, man. It's been fun to, to chat with you about the movie. I'm a fan. I think it's great. Um, one last little thing we should drop in here is tell people where they can see it. Um, you can just illegally download it like everyone did for Skin and Marine. And no, you're uh, not supposed to say that. That's not what you're supposed to. Do. No, I know. <laughs> um, it, uh, no, don't do that. No, actually, I've never illegally downloaded a thing in my life. Yeah, right. 
I don't know. I, I literally have never torrented or anything like that. I always buy the Blu-rays or rent. Um, anyway, beside the point. Um, it's streaming on Screenbox. You can rent or buy it also on all the other platforms that you can get digital movies, uh, like Amazon, etc. And um, it'll be on Blu-ray sometime this year. People should buy and, it and get it, and, and it won't be in a blue case. Well, I'll tell you, Blu-ray's gonna be fucking awesome. So yeah, I'll buy it. I'm in. You got me. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Justin Beam. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing that you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, on Instagram by searching one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. So post, comment, share, like, but don't forget. There's still no substitute for good old-fashioned word of mouth. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>